Hello my friends, welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. This episode is a bit of an extra, it is an addendum of sorts uh, to my Daredevil episode. The reason being, while I was recording uh, that episode, I obviously wanted to talk about Daredevil um, and the Netflix side of the MCU. I did sections for the other shows that weren't Daredevil or Defenders, so Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and The Punisher. However, in editing that episode, if I was to include the sections I recorded as they were, um, the episode would probably be about seven hours long. <laughs> uh, figuring that no one would really listen to a podcast of that length, I decided to separate these sections out of that episode, but to release them anyway, in case anyone would be wishing to hear my thoughts on those shows, as I'm not sure I'll be talking about them again anytime soon in the future due to primarily the fact that we don't know if these characters will be returning to the MCU. These sections are presented in their original form. There have been some some minor edits, but only to the standard of the rest of my uh, output. Um, There will be no outro for this episode, just the sections. So hopefully you enjoy it, for those of you that are curious. And with these shows leaving Netflix at the start of March, um, hopefully for a new future on Hulu or Disney Plus Star, hopefully if you haven't seen them and you're inspired to check them out after listening to anything in this episode, hopefully you'll do that. Thank you very much. And until next time, look after yourselves. Now, obviously, so far, I've kept the focus of this episode on Daredevil and its characters. But off of the back of Defenders, I think I just wanted to speak a little bit about each of the other shows. Um, I'll try to keep them more brief than I have my Daredevil focus, because while presumably they will be returning to the MCU at some point, possibly... um, Nothing is confirmed, whereas we know obviously Daredevil and Kingpin are both very definitely in the MCU now. Um, so I'll start with Jessica Jones. Um, now, Jessica Jones um, stars Kristen Ritter in the title role. She does a very, very good job. Um, the first season was released in 2015, November 2015. Um, The second season uh, came out in March 2018. And the third season um, was officially released in June 2019, um, about five months after it had been officially cancelled in the February. And so the third season was actually advertised as the final season. Now, I'll discuss the cancellations um, that happened with the whole Marvel-Netflix deal um, later on. Jessica Jones has a, a very noirish tone um, and approaches um, sexuality 
as one of its more more major themes for characters, um, including obviously the darker aspect of sexuality with things such as rape and assault and PTSD. Um, it l- has less of a focus on, say, violence and gore than Daredevil. As I said, Kristen Ritter plays Jessica Jones. Um, she obviously suffers from PTSD um, due to her trauma at the hands of Kilgrave. Kilgrave is played by David Tennant, um, which I think is the second episode in the row where he's played a villain um, for my podcast, um, as he was the Lord Commander in Final Space as well. He does a brilliant job as Kilgrave. He is the main villain for Series 1, and I'll speak more about him in a second. Jessica is... a bit of an asshole at times. Um, But, you know, she's very rough around the edges. She's very dry. She's very sarcastic. She's very standoffish with a lot of characters. Um, But she does seem to be a good person. She does seem to care about people. Um, And this becomes quite clear as the show goes on. Her adoptive sister is uh, Trish Walker. Um, Trish, short for Patricia. Um, She's played by Rachel Taylor. Um, When Trish was a young girl... She was a child star known as Patsy. Um, She now works as a radio host. Um, Trish. Trish is a good character. She's she's very warm. She's very encouraging of Jessica. She wants Jessica to be to be a hero. To like, she encourages her to be a vigilante. Um, But Trish also probably gets the most development over the 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 three seasons she goes through some very drastic changes she's a good character she's got her her mother is also a prominent re- recurring character uh Dorothy played by Rebecca de Mornay she is very overbearing <laughs> very self-centered and kind of borderline abusive as well um like she has not been kind in managing trish's uh career as patsy and as a result there's a very strained relationship between her and patsy and especially between her and jessica jessica does not like dorothy at all the other major character who I've mentioned already is Malcolm Ducasse. Uh, Malcolm Ducasse is played by Eka Darville, who is an actor I know from Power Rangers. He played the the Red Rangers, the Red Ranger in Power Rangers RPM, which, by the way, is probably the series I'd recommend the most for Power Rangers. It's a a sort of a post apocalyptic um, series. It's very bizarre, but very good. Um, so obviously I was a fan of him in that and in this he plays a character who when we originally meet him as a drug addict, he's a neighbour of um, Jessica's and he's a drug addict but 
we later learn that he was given the drugs by Kilgrave, and Kilgrave is using him to spy on Jessica. And Jessica finds this out and uh, helps Malcolm get clean. And yeah, then Malcolm sort of ends up becoming her assistant at Alias Investigations before moving on to a different role in season two and season three. And the other prominent character I've also mentioned already is Jaren Hogarth, uh, played by Carrie-Anne Moss, the one who played Trinity in The Matrix. She is very, very good. She's a very powerful attorney. Um, she tends to hire Jessica, uh, being aware of Jessica's powers and talents. Um, the character is male in the comics. Um, Hogarth, obviously, is a woman in the show and is also a lesbian. And She gets some great storylines in the second season she gets diagnosed with ALS and has this phenomenal storyline um through that runs throughout the season which I really really like it's probably my favorite part of season two is Hogarth's storyline where we see her sort of desperate to to sort of solve uh, her ALS and she gets she gets ousted by her partners uh, from her firm at the same time so she's scared of losing everything and she ends up being taken in by a confidence trickster and her associate who claims to be a healer and it's very interesting because we see her in a very, very vulnerable place, which up until now we really haven't seen Hogarth in a vulnerable place. Uh, you know, she was a bit of a bitch in season one. She's uh, she's responsible for Kilgrave actually getting free at one point and killing several other people. Um, she's also a serial cheater. Um, like, one of the first things we see her do is sleep with her secretary. Um... And obviously, as a result, that's cheating on her wife. And then that involves her in a messy divorce throughout most of season one. Um, but yeah, season two really turned me around on the character of Hogarth. Although season three might be going back on that from what I've seen of it so far. I'm, I've not completed season three yet. I'm currently watching it. But the the main villain of season one especially is Kilgrave. Kilgrave was born as uh, Kevin Thompson. He was experimented on by his parents, um, giving him his powers. And he... Like I said, he's got the powers to make people do whatever he wants with verbal commands. And it is incredible. He is terrifying. Um... You know, and when we see Kilgrave, it explains a lot of why Jessica is the way Jessica is. <sighs> because we see exactly the sort of character Kilgrave was and the effect that that had on her. And, you know, even when we learn his backstory, um, it doesn't make him any more sympathetic. He is... He's a character you loathe. He has just this this cold sense of apathy 
for people because he can make people do whatever he wants. So why should he have to care about them? <sighs> it's it's really callous. It's brilliant. Um, the other main recurring character in season one is a character called Will Simpson. Um, when we first meet Simpson, he is a um, police lieutenant, let's say, uh, a police sergeant. And he sees everything in this real sort of black and white. Um, you know, things are either good or bad. And that kind of clashes with Jessica, who sees things as very much a world of grey. Like, for example, with Malcolm. Malcolm is someone who's initially opposed to her, but is opposed to her because of how he's being used by Kilgrave. So she feels sorry for him. Um... And by the end of the season, Will evolves into this somewhat psychotic antagonist. Like, he gets injured, and he gets given these tablets by his doctor. And it's basically revealed that Will used to be in the army, and he was part of some sort of super soldier-type program while in the army. Um, and this is because he's an adaptation of a comic character called Nuke. Um, Nuke, in the comics, was essentially a Captain America for the Vietnam War and it went wrong <laughs> it, it is the best way to describe it um, he's given combat drugs to enhance his powers and they're red, white and blue and the reds make him aggressive and angry um, the blues kind of calm him down and yeah by the end of the season we see Will as the character of Nuke with, with the iconic line, give me a red. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting adaptation of a character um, where he's, he's very similar to the character of Nuke, but very different at the same time. And I think it works really well. Season one, I loved both the first time I watched it when it released and every time I've watched it since. It's, it focuses so much on the central character of Jessica and her trauma at the hands of Kilgrave and most importantly how she processes that trauma from fear to a desire for vengeance to trying to defeat him to save the people in her life that are at risk from him and it, it's just a great story um, like I said, it also serves as the introduction to Luke Cage quite early on, played by Mike Coulter, um, ahead of the debut in his own series. Um, Luke and Jessica are obviously a couple in the comics, so they have um, some very spicy scenes in this. Um, Mike Coulter plays the character of Luke Cage really well. Like Luke Cage has been written in a variety of ways in the comics, and, you know, he originated as a character that sort of was born out of the black exploitation genre, like a black character very clearly written by a lot of white people. <laughs> so a lot of his characterization has sort of echoed that um, down the years. Like <sighs> there was a there was a while in sort of the mid 2000s where he came back and he swore a lot. And it's like, a lot of the characters swear in these series. 
Um, but it means that the the swearing is obviously neutered in this. Like, for example, Jessica is missing a lot of her, her quite signature F-bombs that she drops in the comics. Um, and she says a lot of goddamn instead. And it's not quite the same thing as, you know, a very appropriate F-word. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one thing... You know, you can know a lot of words and you can say a lot of words, but sometimes the most appropriate word is an F word. And there's none of them in the show at all. <laughs> in any of these shows, I don't think the, the, the F word appears at all. Um, but obviously in the comics, when Jessica Jones originally appeared, it was an adult-themed, an adult-appropriate comic. Um, you know, it had sex, it had nudity, it had swearing, it had violence. And, yeah, all of that's missing. But, yeah, what I was saying with Luke Cage is in the mid-2000s, at one point, he he swore a lot. It was a very kind of, you know, gangster rap style of swearing where it kind of punctuated every other word. In this, the take they've gone for Luke Cage is someone who dislikes swearing. And... You know, he's gone back to the the sort of very comic book phrase of Sweet Christmas, um, which appeared in the 70s as sort of his way of getting around swearing. And it's like, yeah, he plays Luke with so much subtext and it really works. Um, you know, he's he's like a man who has very, very few words, but at the same time speaks volumes and it's it's very well done and yeah i think it it really works for the character um to define him very very well for a new generation as i said there's a lot of sex in this as well there's a lot of sex scenes between luke and jessica like at one point they break the bed um i'm not sure how necessary it all is but it's also not gratuitous like it's not, for example, Game of Thrones. Um, there's no explicit nudity. Um, it's it's generally just sex between consenting adults, and sometimes characters have been evolved for 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 uh, several episodes as well, like uh, Will and Trish, uh, Will Simpson and Trish end up together at some point as well. So. It's a curious choice. I think one of the strongest parts of Kristen Ritter in the lead role as Jessica is um, showing her variety as an actor. Um, for example, we see Jessica a lot of the times in the first two seasons um, actually investigating cases. Um, so she'll like impersonate people or act as different characters um as part of her detective work but i think the true talent is with the story writers and directors how they craft jessica as this very fully developed but at the same time very very damaged character you know she's an alcoholic abuse survivor with a very troubled history she's prone to emotional outbursts she has superpowers but she's also has 
like a strong sense of apathy, but at the same time is really close to certain people and really cares about certain people. And yeah, it's it's really well done. The series also has um, Jessica narrate a lot of episodes, not constantly, um, but there is definitely a very strong element of narration. And obviously that sort of narration, that character narration is a key thing in comic books. And it's one of those you always have to try and find ways to incorporate it on screen when they do adaptations you know i've said before in the spider-man movies how you either have for example spider-man is a character who has like a constant ongoing narrative inside his head his, his inner voice is quite constant so you either then have to have that vocalized or absent or find another way around it and so, for example, they have him talk to other characters. Um, and so what they've do, done with this is they have Jessica do it as narration, as though she's uh, as though she's like writing up her case notes almost. And it works quite well, I think, because the, the character is outwardly quite quiet and stoic. Um, so the narration gets us sort of into her psyche and kind of lets us know who she is a bit more. Anyway, the plot with Kilgrave carries on throughout season one. He, um, We found out Jessica escaped from him because he ordered her to kill someone. And her killing someone, who turned out to be um, the woman that Luke was in love with, that sort of freed her from his control. And she believed Kilgrave was dead. Um, but obviously he's returned. And he's been obsessed with her all the time that he's been gone. And she tries to capture him to try and get proof of who he is. Um, because she was hired uh, for a client um, early on in the first episode. Because they do a kind of what they did with Daredevil Season 1. Where they do a... A self-contained plot that's also a bigger part of the plot, and it was a, a student who'd who'd gone missing, and Jessica tracked her down and realised that Kilgrave was the one who took her, and that was very well done. And then just as she gets this girl Hope to safety and puts her in the lift with her, puts her in the elevator with her parents, Hope pulls a gun out of her bag and shoots them both dead due to a a post-hypnotic suggestion that she's been given by Kilgrave. Oh, it was it was very, very good. And just the realization on uh Jessica's face that Kilgrave's back and that she failed. It was very, very well done. Um but you know they capture him and then because of Hogarth's meddling because she wanted um to use Kilgrave to sort of deal with her ex wife um during their divorce um, you know, Kilgrave manages to escape. He manages to get his parents involved and gets his dad to enhance his powers, um, so that he can now control people for longer and he can control more people. Um, he ends up sending Luke against Jessica, so Jessica has to 
to incapacitate Luke, which leaves him really injured, but also means that they can bring in Claire to heal him. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, Jessica having to do everything to try and stop Kilgrave, which she does in the end with the help of Trish and Malcolm and leaves him dead. But then that increases her celebrity. She's now known as the hero that stopped Kilgrave. The whole story becomes public. You know, due to the testimony of characters like Hogarth and Trish and everything like that. Trish coming to help Jessica in the final episodes as well really kind of develops her and sets her on a path for the the next season. Because there was a bit sort of in the middle of this first season where it seemed like they didn't really know what to do with Trish. Like, she calls out Kilgrave on the radio, um, which has him call into the studio in quite a, a tense moment. But uh, beyond her interactions with um, Jessica and her mother and Will, she's not really as much of a part of the plot. She's not a fighter. Like, she brings Will and Jessica together and they conspire to capture Kilgrave. But she's not as much of a part of that. Some elements of uh, Simpson towards the end of the series make me wonder how he became a sergeant in the NYPD anyway. Because he comes across as very impulsive and vengeful. Although, looking at real-world American police over the past couple of years, I don't know, maybe that fits really well. Um, Malcolm, once he's free of the drugs, really becomes an interesting character, very sympathetic. Um, we kind of learn that he wants to help others and, you know, he tries to keep secrets for Jessica at one point, which almost leads to him and several others dying. Um, but, you know, he still wants to help. Like, he's the one who answers the phone at the end of the episode, sort of cementing his place by Jessica's side. Um, which works really well. Um, the problem is with season one, I think season two had really big shoes to fill because of Kilgrave. Kilgrave is just a sublime villain. Um, unlike, for example, Wilson Fisk, he has no redeeming qualities at all. Um, he's just this despicable, callous, quite terrifying villain who we really want to see get his comeuppance. And he ends up built as this really sinister presence way before we even see him for the first time. And when we do actually see him for the first time, it's he, he sort of walks into this person's house and takes it over, gets the kids to lock themselves in a closet. It's so sinister and with just this, this, this apathy for the people that's just immediately apparent. They are just tools to him. You know, every... You know, he uses people the way we would use tools. And he just has this real flippant disregard for anyone else. And the threat of him is just palpable throughout the entire show. Uh, you know, he holds a whole police station hostage. He buys Jessica's childhood home and gets her to come and move in with him. It's just, it's very, very well done. And, you know, after he expands his powers towards 
the, towards the end of the show. At one point, he sends a whole hospital after Jessica Jones because he's now able to use his powers over the radio. So you, you, you have patients and doctors both trying to attack her. And it's just a testament to his, and, and Kristen Ritter's as well, um, acting talent that, you know, and the script and the direction and the way he's built up and shown, even when he's not directly appearing on screen, that he comes across as this evil villain and he doesn't feel cliche or forced and he's just he's he's quite possibly the best villain in the MCU you know even counting someone like Thanos or Kilgrave uh, not Kilgrave Killmonger or you know, Loki, all these Mysterio, all these other great villains that we've had, even in the new age of the MCU, like Mandarin and uh, Green Goblin. I don't, th I don't think any of them beat Kilgrave. You know, he's he's got to be a contender for one of the best realized antagonists in fiction, but specifically this depiction of him. Um. Because he's he's so good, and you know his his loss, his death at the end of the season one, impacts the rest of the show. Um, you know, season two I remember quite liking when I first watched it, but it wasn't as good as season one, and a big part of that was its villain and its story not being quite as focused, and my opinions just soured on it since release um yeah season two introduces <sighs> season two basically season two starts with trish pointing jessica towards a group called igh they're the ones responsible for jessica's enhanced abilities and jessica gets sort of closer to them and begins investigating them after she encounters someone else, uh, a character called the Wizard, who I never expected to see realised in live action at all, um, who is a super speedster, um, who's been given his uh, powers from IGH as well. And he gets killed in this apparent accident after saying that someone was after him. And... You know, Jessica starts to investigate IGH and then realizes that a load of people linked to them are being killed off. First of all, the wizard, then Simpson reappears and gets killed off, as does his doctor. And as she investigates, she finds out that they're being killed by this uh this woman. And this, this woman is killing everyone involved with IGH. But the woman turns out to be Jessica Jones's mother, Alisa. And she's played by Janet McTeer, who does a tremendous job in the role. She comes across very threatening uh, when needed to be, but also very calm and very warm and approachable at the same time. Basically... Alisa was um, 
helped by IGH as well as Jessica. And she gained similar sort of ab abilities. But her mental stability was more affected than Jessica's was. And so she's been responsible for killing people to try and hide her away. She's found out that the doctor who experimented on her has fallen in love with her. She's fallen in love with him. Uh, he's called Carl Marlis. Um, and yeah, the series basically follows Jessica kind of trying to decide what to do with her mother. Um, while Trish is kind of trying to get her to to have her arrested for all the murders that she's done. Um, yeah, it's, it feels muddled. The whole season feels muddled. The best episode in the whole season is the flashback episode, which works really, really well. It focuses on Trish and... Uh, Jessica as younger people in the early 2000s we see sort of Jessica with her first real relationship we see um, Trish as like a child star on the wane trying to relaunch herself as a, um, a singer um, and that not being terribly successful and that leading towards uh, drug addiction and other things like that and it's a good episode and it's told really well through the flashback. A lot of it kind of centering on uh, Elisa as well as uh, Jessica and uh, Trish. But obviously, and it works really well with the parallels to the current stories um, with Jessica now in another relationship and seeming to find happiness and Trish heading towards drug addiction again because she's been taking will simpson's tablets uh to sort of give herself powers but then jessica makes the um the sort of really bad decision to hide elisa and help her to escape the the police and you know, I get what the showrunners were going for, you know, by trying to have Jessica hold on to her living mother who's just appeared from the blue. And I have no problem with that on, on that level of irrational thinking in theory. And it does fit the character, but it doesn't fit with the build-up of the storyline from the previous episodes. And as a result, feels like padding. And that takes up about two episodes and that means that the best part of those two episodes is the subplots um uh, things like malcolm investigating um hogarth's former partners for her or hogarth's story with the confidence tricksters uh, and you know jessica tries to hold on to elisa but it all goes wrong, um, mainly due to Trish. Um, Carl ends up dead after experimenting on Trish. Trish ends up in hospital, almost dead. Um, you know, Trish is trying to gain powers through Carl's experimentation. Like, she willingly agreed to it. And 
just at the point in the finale where Elisa's like, you know, I'll go to prison. That's what I need to do because you need to be out here being the hero and helping people. And, you know, after seeing what Jessica can do. Right then, Trish shoots her in the head. And it creates this divide between Jessica and Trish, which leads into the next season. And, you know, Trish now has powers as well. But, you know, it's it's just as Jessica has happiness, it has to be taken away. I don't know if there's a way around it where they could have kept Lisa alive. Um, but, I don't know, it just leads to a very... A very muddled season. Like like I said, Janet Matia is doing a, a really good job as Elisa. Like her emotional journey makes you feel relate makes her feel relatable and we have sympathy for her. Um you know, way more than we ever did with Kilgrave. Like she's a villain, but we don't hate her. We we, we don't want to see her go and she's you know we like her as a character, especially by the end. And she becomes the driving force of the flashback episode, which is the best episode of the series. But as a villain, she feels more like a plot device a lot of the time. And her situations are kind of contrived. Like, there's one point where she's being tortured by someone in the prison. And we empathise with her plight. But, again, the story just feels like padding like a distraction from the overall narrative that doesn't work you know even in the finale uh you know jessica and elisa go on the run and all of a sudden there's this really dramatic action sequence where they save a family because there has to be um and it's like everything seems fine between them we just know it's going to go wrong so we're just waiting for it to inevitably blow up in their faces which it does when Alisa gets killed <sighs> there's other characters introduced as well like there's an early antagonist called Price who's an investigator for another law firm and he seems interesting at first but then gets sidelined really quickly um, Malcolm Get some really interesting stuff to do, but then at one point he's kind of given the enhancement drug by um, uh, Trish and then disappears for three episodes. And it's obviously had this real traumatic effect on him, but we don't see what actually happened to him. He just disappears high and then comes back and he's fine and is really antagonistic towards Trish, rightly so. Trish as well goes from someone that was one of Jessica's strongest allies by the end of season one to someone who by the end of season two you don't really like very much. Like some of her plots start well, like she wants to help Jessica learn about her origins with IGH um, or, you know, she's exploring connections through um, like her old manager and then you find out that um, 
you know, she had someone who basically uh, raped her when she was a teenager. And, you know, some of that is quite terrifying and scary, like the elements of what a child star can face in the industry. And I think this was this came out like a year or so before the Me Too movement or around the same time. Um, but I think it was before Me Too really blew up. And yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting inclusion. But her drug addiction, this addiction becomes an addiction to power. Um, perhaps inspired by what she experienced from fighting Simpson in season one. Like she's the one responsible for taking him down using one of his tablets. And, but also maybe a jealousy over Jessica's powers. Um, you know, despite all the positives that she has, like she has a love life and a career and things like that. Like her career goes through steps in this, but she kind of loses it all by the end. Um, you know, she kind of strong arms Malcolm in several of her schemes. Um, but you just lose all sympathy for her because she just clashes with Jessica. And, you know, and then, and then she kills Elisa, but we have no idea how she managed to track them down or find them so quickly when police were looking for them. And it, it all feels like it's set up rather than for to have them apart rather than natural development. Malcolm does get some good stuff to do like uh, when he uh, manages to cap the, the dirt on Hogarth's former partners. And you know, helps them, helps Hogarth to get away from her contract with them in a way where she's on top, and that becomes a bit triumphant. And like I said, I really enjoyed Hogarth's plotline as well with the ALS. And you know, when she found when she finds out that she's been taken advantage of, you feel really bad for her. But then she goes and buys a gun from Turk. Um. And, you know, manipulates the two of them into killing each other. And, oh, it's, it's very well done. It's kind of a glorious revenge. And shows just how cold and calculating Hogarth can be. Um, You know, and then she starts a new firm. And she, she brings Malcolm on as an investigator. Yeah, it's it's good. Um, Jessica also kills someone in this, and that brings Kilgrave in as like a guilty conscience inside her head. Um, and so you get scenes with him interacting with her as like an inner voice. Um, during some of the more meandering parts of the story, it, it's only for one episode, but it's. It's pretty good. I, I do wish it had lasted longer. Like having him as like her inner voice for a longer period could have been good. But then I think we would have just wanted Kilgrave rather than everything else. Because as it is, it's an it's a nice part of just showing how 
scary he is. Um, like I said, I am watching season three right now. Season three involves the divide between Jessica and Trish, um, and also the divide between Jessica and Malcolm. However, they're all starting to come together. They're being menaced by a villain named Gregory Salinger, who has no powers, as far as I can tell, and is just very cool, very calculating, very clever. And everything he's done so far has been several steps ahead. Um, I think of a 13-episode season, I think I'm on episode 9, episode 10. And he's just killed Dorothy um, after manipulating Jessica and Trish into kind of embarrassing themselves on television. He's just killed Dorothy, uh, which has then sent Trish after him. <sighs> the two of them have kind of made up their differences, um, but at the same time, it, there's other tension between certain members, like... Um, Malcolm feels that he's in a, a dark place because of the stuff that Hogarth's been getting him to do. Um, Hogarth tried to manipulate one of her exes away from her husband. And the information that she got Malcolm to expose about him led to him committing suicide and bad-mouthing Jerry over the internet about it. Um, Hogarth is now defending Salinger and has taken a very anti-vigilante approach, um, you know, against Jessica and Trish. So I'm interested to see how it all comes together um, and how much of a conclusion it will be because... I don't know if they did go back and change anything or add anything after the official cancellation announcement came down, but Jessica Jones Season 3 is the only thing that came out where they knew they weren't getting anything else afterwards. So I am curious to see how it ends. Luke Cage was the third of the Netflix series to be released. Its first season came after Daredevil Season 2 in September 2016. And the second season um, came in June 2018. Both seasons featured uh, Chia Hadari Koka as the um, showrunner. Um Along with um, Melissa Rosenberg for Jessica Jones, I think it, those are the only two seasons that have maintained the same showrunner um, across both across multiple seasons. You know, Daredevil's had a different showrunner every season. Uh, Iron Fist had a different showrunner across its two seasons. I think Punisher had a, a, the same showrunner, but I think it was joined by extra people. Um. It features uh, Mike Coulter as Luke Cage. Obviously, the character had already appeared in Jessica Jones, so we knew who the character was. But it puts him in a new area of New York, now in Harlem rather than Hell's Kitchen, 
and gives him a new supporting cast. A very, very good supporting cast as well. Um, Simone Missick plays Misty Knight. Uh, Theo Rossi plays a criminal called Shades. Rosaria Dawson obviously returns as Claire Temple. Uh, Mahershala Ali plays the character of Cottonmouth, who is an underworld leader. And his sister, Alfre, uh, no, sister, cousin, um, Black Mariah, uh, Mariah Dillard, is played by uh, Alfred, Alfre Woodard. And she is fantastic in this show, um, especially in season two, where she becomes the main villain for the show. Um, Alfre Woodard is an actress who gives phenomenal performances um i first encountered her work in um star trek first contact um and since then i've seen her in a number of things and i've been impressed with her every time i've seen her she plays some incredible characters and she plays them very very well the music for the show is composed by uh adrian young and he does some very very good music for the show um there's a lot of sort of funk elements and um hip-hop elements to it the show also features uh, an extended list of musical guest appearances like pretty much every episode um of the show uh, features um guest spots usually with live musicians especially in season one you know, there's guest performances by a range of artists. Um, uh, most notably, uh, Charles Bradley, Faith Evans, uh, Method Man as well also gets a cameo in uh, an episode and composes an original song um, for the series. It's The music just helps helps it really invoke the culture and serves well as a soundtrack for you know one of the more cultural aspects of new york and it's great to see i really really like it and the second season only in increases the the musical um references as we start to you know the second season focuses on a group of Jamaican gangsters, so we start to get a lot more um, reggae into the soundtrack, as well as the sort of the funk and the soul and the R and B influences that were already there. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It's really, really well done. You know, it's 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 using all these multiple disparate influences um, that are just united by being part of black culture. Um, sort of years before these things were well i say years before but um it wasn't really was it because it was around about the same time that we sort of had hamilton do a similar sort of thing so yeah it's very very interesting now when it comes to luke cage i absolutely love this show um to me luke cage is probably one of the strongest entries in this portion of the MCU. Um, season 1 especially. I really really enjoy it. Although season 2 I do think improved upon it. In every way. 
And I realise not everyone agrees with me. Um, and I think especially pre-Defenders, Luke Cage Season 1 is one of the best entries there is alongside... Um, you know, it deserves to stand up there with Daredevil Season 1 and Jessica Jones Season 1. It's phenomenal. You know, from the minute the show starts, it just oozes a sense of fun and cool, for a lack of a better word, that the other shows just don't have. You know, it's got... You know, obviously, first of all, is the music. Then you've got these these warm characters that just sort of invite you in and it just feels so welcoming um a lot of the show is built around the uh, sort of central location which is harlem's paradise which is a club owned by cottonmouth cottonmouth uh, his real name is cornell stokes um you know cottonmouth was a childhood nickname that stuck that he's not particularly fond of, but it's it's kind of stuck, and he's he'll he'll make do with it. And the actual Harlem's Paradise set is this this gorgeous location. There's a couple of a couple of episodes set wholly within Harlem's Paradise, and you get a real sense of the the geography of the building and the layout of it. And obviously, the musical numbers that take place there are brilliant and never feel like they're detracting from the narrative. They only seem to enhance it. There's all these warm colours in the lighting, the set design, the cinematography, um, which stand in contrast to everything we'd seen before in Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Um, I, I commented a bit about that earlier when I was talking about Defenders. And the characters all make really strong first impressions. I mean, obviously we knew Luke, but we then get... Um, you know, his supporting uh, characters like Pop, who is kind of um, a mentor figure to him. Uh, Bobby Fish, who is a a supporting character with a, a quite a sardonic wit. Um, Misty is this alluring, um, beautiful woman who is in Harlem's Paradise, who we later learn is a police officer. You know, she's undercover, but, you know, uh, sleeps with Luke uh, in the first episode. Cottonmouth, who, despite being the villain, just has a real sort of suaveness to him. Like, you know, one of his most famous scenes is in the first episode, shortly before he beats someone to death. Um, you know, he's talking about the poster of Biggie Smalls that he's got on his walls. Yeah, Biggie Smalls on his walls. Um, that he's got on the wall behind him. And... It's got a real smoothness to it. Um, you know, even characters like Mariah, who just seems so determined to, you know, she's got this dark history and this links to Cottonmouth, but she's also a public face. She's trying to become a public figure to, to rebuild Harlem. She's a counsellor. Um, and then Shades comes in as this kind of wary you know, makes Cottonmouth wary because he's an enforcer for Cottonmouth's boss, Diamondback. But he, he just has this almost assassin smile. Like, you know the guy's hiding something. And obviously just anchoring everything is Luke Cage, as this character that we're already invested in, already interested in. 
And the series goes on. Um, the main the main inciting events are um, one of Cottonmouth's enforcers trying to get hold of someone who robbed from Cottonmouth, um, who was hiding in Pop's barbershop. Pop's uh, always had like his barbershop has been like the Switzerland of Harlem. Like anyone can come in there, and it's like safe and neutral ground. Um, Cottonmouth's enforcer shoots the place up, um, which leads to Pop's death, um, leads to the kind of outing of Luke as a hero. Um, this then causes tension between Luke and Cottonmouth. Um, Cottonmouth then tries to respond by shooting at Luke with a rocket launcher and kind of dropping a building on him. Um, which then outs Luke Cage to the media as like this this bulletproof hero of Harlem. Um, and, you know, Cottonmouth wants to deal with Luke, who's like this thorn in his side, while at the same time, there's also the, the funeral for a pop and everything like that. And Mariah's trying to, to put a positive spin on everything and try and distance herself from Cornell, which is just creating tension between them. All the while, Shades, who's um, Dimeback's enforcer, he's like, Dimeback is Cottonmouth's boss, and he's trying to make sure that everything is running as it should be, um, which is creating even more tension for Cottonmouth. Um, Misty's investigating Harlem's Paradise because she wants to try and pin something on Cottonmouth, so she ends up becoming allied to Luke as a result, and it's all just building intention, building intention. And it's done very, very well. Keeps the focus on the characters. And you do get some great connections to the wider MCU in there as well. Like um, Diamondback has these bullets called Judas bullets that can penetrate armor and then explode. And it says that they're created from... They were created by Justin Hammer from Iron Man 2 using Chitauri tech. Um which is reference to, um, obviously, the, the aliens who attacked in the Avengers movie. Um, and that echoes things that you sort of see in the MCU with um, the item 47 one-shot or um, Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, Trish even gets cameo on her Trish Talk radio show um, talking about, you know, the bulletproof hero of Harlem, you know. And getting conversations from callers that sort of highlight that Luke is getting this celebrity around him, whether he wants it or not. You know, he just wants to lay low and get on with his life. But people are like, no, you're a hero. Help us, you know. Um, we even get um, Fisk's lawyer, um, Donovan, uh, from Daredevil, comes in and just as dislikable here as he was there. Um, and we see him... Uh, linked to Cottonmouth and Mariah as their lawyer, um, which also implies a link between Fisk and Cottonmouth, um, which is possible. I mean, Fisk's plans obviously went beyond Hell's Kitchen, um, so the two of them would probably have interacted at some point, eventually, had Daredevil not taken Fisk down. Yeah. 
we get two major flashback episodes. The first one of which um, shows how Luke got his powers. The second one, however, is the more interesting one, um, which explores the childhood of uh, Mariah and Cornell and shows that they were like that one of their family members was well, two two family members of note there's mama mabel who is sort of the matriarch of their family and she was you know a crime lord in her day and pete stokes and pete uh, cornell kind of idolized as you know one of mama mabel's um main guys like go to guys um, but it's implied, in fact, it's outright stated that Pete basically took advantage of Mariah when she was younger. You know, Mariah was, um, you know, Mum Mabel ran prostitution and all sorts of other things in the area, and Pete took advantage of some of the women, but also Mariah. Um, and it just has this real tragedy to the pair of them and helps to explain a lot of their, their current relationship and the strain between it. But then it culminates in the present day as Cornell is like, um, you know, tormenting her and kind of egging her on. And he mentions about Pete and how she kind of led him on. And... Mariah explodes on him and and everything's kind of been unraveling for her anyway and she just turns on Cottonmouth and kills him she pushes him through the window at Harlem's Paradise and then comes down and beats him to death and it's it's really well shot it's really well done um obviously her rage and the acting is just incredible. Um, and it, you know, you've got two powerhouse actors uh, performing some of their best scenes at the top of their game. It's brilliant. It's really great to watch. However, the removal of Cornell leads to Diamondback coming in as a villain. Now, Diamondback coming in as a villain seems to be the dividing point with a lot of fans regarding season one. Most of the feedback I've seen from season one is people really like Cottonmouth. They think Cottonmouth is a great villain, while Diamondback isn't, and that killing Cottonmouth to bring in Diamondback hurt the series overall. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Um, Cottonmouth is a good villain, definitely, but unlike Fisk, who was a, a villain with many interesting lieutenants who are still growing his power base or or Kilgrave who had to be found before Jessica could challenge him. Cottonmouth was already as powerful as we would see him. He was well known to our heroes and all of his lieutenants were minor characters with quite little presence, you know, and most of them, like his biggest lieutenant, Cottonmouth himself kills because he killed Pop. Because Cottonmouth was close to Pop. And. You know. He was subservient to Diamondback. Shades comes in. Not as 
Cornell's assistant, but as Diamondback's enforcer. He's like, I suppose the a good example would be to use the case of like a police procedural, for example. Um, Shades is the guy who's been sent by command to check and make sure the precinct's running smoothly. You know, that's what he is to Cornell. He's not, he's not subservient and he's not his boss. He is the guy who's then been sent by his boss to make sure everything's running the way it should. And so Diamondback was always set up as the big boss. And as a result, while Cornell's chemistry with Luke was fantastic and it would have been nice to see him longer, it's quite clear he was never meant to be the big bad of the season, but just a stepping stone to Diamondback. Like, his plans have been falling apart since the first episode. He killed his chief lieutenant in the second episode. Misty knew who he was, but just couldn't pin anything on him. Um, Luke knew who he was and had confronted him a couple of times. You know, whereas Diamondback was now this new entity, this new unknown entity to our heroes that could be explored. Um, You know, Cottonmouth had wasn't in control anymore and had just run his course and i think diamondback comes in and i think he makes a great first impression as a villain like the first thing he does is he shoots luke with a judas bullet um you know he uses a he comes in riding a uh in a military humvee he's using this rifle he's acting cool as a cucumber he's got this really great musical motif he knows who Luke is, and he makes clear he knows who Luke is, which then makes Luke realise that he knows Diamondback. Diamondback is a, uh, someone he knew when he was a kid called Willis. Um, you know, Luke Cage is an assumed identity. His real name is Carl Lucas, and Willis obviously knows that and calls him Carl. Uh, so now we've got this villain with a really strong link to the hero. Um that I don't think Cottonmouth had. And I think it's really good. Um, you know, the episode he appears is my favourite episode of the series. You have Luke and Claire overnight on the run from Diamondback, and Luke's wounded. And they're also being chased by Misty as well. Um, while at the same time, then Shades and Mariah deal with the aftermath of her killing Cottonmouth. You know, I, yeah, I just I just stand by my assertion that Diamondback's the better villain. I, you know, he comes in later on in one scene and he um, he executes four mob leaders that Mariah was, like, treating with. And he just comes in, kills them all one by one, and just chews the scenery while doing it. He's played by Eric, Eric LeRae Harvey, who was... Also a character in... He played a character called Dunn in Boardwalk Empire, which I've yet to see, but I'm very intrigued to see. And he plays Diamondback with this real swagger. Like, it, it's like... Like I said, Luke Cage has his origins in black exploitation, and you really feel that with Diamondback. Like, Diamondback feels like a black exploitation villain. But 
a black exploitation villain being with creative input from black people. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like exploitation. It feels like a very good take on it. And it's it's fun. And I think it's fun. And I think, you know, he becomes a solid core for some of the next episodes as Luke ends up on this subplot to try and restore his powers because obviously he's been wounded and things like that. And some of that just kind of drags on. And, you know, the stuff with Diamondback and Mariah becomes really, really good. Like, Mariah seems to be the only person who isn't intimidated by him, which then shows her own strength, which she's gained by killing Cornell. <sighs> and you end up with, you know, for example, there's one episode which is just a siege in Harlem's Paradise. And, like, Luke's in the building, Diamondback knows he's in the building, Shades is with him. And it's like, they want to try and find him, but he's hiding. Misty's also in there as well. And it's surrounded by police outside. And, you know, everyone's involved in this, this episode. And the whole situation just starts loud and then just continues to escalate from there. Like, they even bring in um, a DA Tower from Daredevil. You know, to try and de-escalate everything. <sighs> and it's brilliant. And and the series, the season ends really well. Um, there's a... You know, we see Luke's celebrity growing. We see a cop letting him go, despite the fact that he's wanted, just because the cop's like, yeah, you're a hero. I don't believe all that. You can go. Um, you know, he interacts with Method Man and kind of saves him. Method Man writes a song about him um, called Bulletproof Love because one of Luke's things is he, he wears hoodies and obviously because he's bulletproof, his clothes aren't. So he ends up getting shot and he ends up with these bulletproof hoodies. So then you end up with a load of copycat bulletproof hoodies being worn by people on the streets. And it's like whether he wants to be or not, Luke Cage is a hero. And it's it's fun. And then And Diamondback comes in with this powered powered up suit. Um, you know, he's he's framed Luke for murder at some point using this powered gauntlet to make it look like Luke had punched someone to death. Um You know, while wearing one of the bulletproof hoodies. But you know, he comes in this powered suit and it's very comic accurate, but that does make it look a bit goofy. Because some things that were created in the 70s probably shouldn't be in live action. But yeah, Luke beats Diamondback. He explains his whole origin and everything to the police, which then leads to him going back to prison and leaving Claire behind. Um, Diamondback gets taken away by the scientist who um, created Luke's powers in the first place, which was a nice little tease that obviously isn't going to go anywhere at the minute and that's a shame um because i would have loved to see them clash again um and the series ends with mariah and shades now a couple like this power couple um taking over harlem's paradise and they replace the biggie picture on the wall with uh, a picture of a couple together um, which is a great bit of symbolism. Misty's back in Harlem's Paradise, she's keeping an eye on them while Luke goes off to prison. And 
yeah, it's good. I I I really think the a lot of people write off the second half of the season um, after Cornell dies in episode seven. But for me, the two best episodes in the season are episodes eight, which is Luke on the run from Diamondback, and episode 11, which is the Siege of Harlem's Paradise. So the best episodes of the season are in the second half. Um, the second season, though, does improve in every way. I think they address every concern made about the first season really well um it follows up more from defenders we've got some fallout there with uh, misty obviously being wounded um she's missing an arm which has affected her role in the police um and obviously is a constant callback to defenders which is something that um season two of jessica jones for example lacked completely um We get the introduction of some new characters and developments of other characters. We get um, Shades' old cellmate Comanche has come back. Um, and he sort of becomes Shade and Mariah's biggest enforcer. Um, there's a minor character who's part of their group called Sugar, who was in the first season but not really developed much. And he's he gets some good stuff. There's a, a new villain called Bushmaster. Um, and he leads this um, Jamaican gang and he's got, like, his family had some big beef with Mama Mabel. And so he's coming back to take away Mariah's throne, basically. You know, he wants to undo all the power that Mariah has because it should belong to his family. Because his family was betrayed by Mama Mabel. Um, we also get introduced to Mariah's estranged daughter, uh, Tilda. Um, we get um, Piranha Jones, who's a lawyer working for um, uh, Mariah. Who also turns out to be a huge Luke Cage fanboy. <laughs> Like, he has one of Luke Cage's actual hoodies in his um, in his office, along with a whole load of other memorabilia. Um, but yeah, it's just... It's done very well, I think. The, the main focus is, while Bushmaster comes across as the most immediately, immediate antagonist, um, like, he's got this... Um, sort of potion that he uses to kind of enhance his powers and it's like folk magic um to make him strong and bulletproof so he actually like incapacitates luke quite early on in the second season um but mariah is definitely the big villain of the season i think compared to season one um season two definitely works better in a binge um you know just because the the way we you know experience media at the minute it works really well when binged um like a lot of the episodes have plot threads that delve straight into another one um 
and the conclusions as well generally want you to immediately watch the next one. Um, there's some good stuff. Um, we get the reveal that um, Comanche is now a criminal informant and Shades finds this out at one point and has to kill him. And you get a real sort of tender moment between them before he does where he reveals that, like, he kind of loves Comanche, which is a really good exploration of the sort of quite complex relationships that um, heterosexual men go through in prison. You know, these these two were were very, very, very close. <sighs> Mariah kind of, you know, constantly under attack from um, Bushmaster and his stylers, the gang that, that he's part of, um, kind of becomes more driven and more vengeful. Um, which then distances her from Shades, like she goes to measures that Shades is a bit sort of scared about. Um, you know, we find out that Piranha Jones has kind of taken all of her money off of her and given it to Bushmaster. Um, so she, at one point she ends up with, like, nothing. Um, and just becomes so angry at it, but she doesn't... You know, Shades is like, let me help. And she's like, no, and pushes him away. It's, yeah, there's a lot of great character stuff as she develops into a villain and a big villain at that. Luke starts becoming more brutal as well um, because of the power he has and the means he feels he needs to go to. Um to to deal with Bushmaster and to deal with Mariah and that causes him to clash with Claire and Claire actually leaves quite early on um, and then so do several other characters so it leaves Luke kind of without the support network that he had um, he does kind of sort of get support from Misty after she uh, has been helped by Colleen um, and Rand, because uh, Rand Technologies have given her a, a simonetic arm, which looks quite good considering the limitations of the budget. Um, but again, with that, it's a uh, you know she's now different as well. She's now more willing to go to lengths that maybe she wouldn't before. Um, in the same way that Luke is. The problem is, as he goes into the second half of the season, while there is some good stuff in this show, um, a lot of the episodes only start to get really, really interesting in the last few minutes, um, purely to keep you hooked so that you watch the next one. Um, Jessica Jones Season 2 had the same issue to a certain extent, but... Because the characters and plots are more interesting in general in Luke Cage, I don't seem to mind it as much in here, but the cliffhangers also become somehow worse than they were in Jessica Jones, in that they tend to get resolved quite quickly at the start of the next episode, for the most part. Like, one of the cliffhangers uh, quite early on features Misty finding a perp beheaded, and then a couple of other people beheaded. 
and then the heads end up at Mariah's new complex during its grand opening, um, which becomes a cliffhanger. And then obviously it's kind of not really part of the story of the next episode. It's just kind of, oh, yeah, there were some there were some guys that the Bushmaster, uh, that the Stylers managed to get a hold of. One episode um, that's very, very good um, towards the the latter half of the season features Mariah, Luke, Tilda, um, Luke's father, James Lucas, who's a pastor, um, who's kind of a supporting character due to their estranged relationship. Um, and I think Misty as well. Kind of on the run in this this complex that Mariah's built kind of encircled by the stylers and, you know, trying to stay safe. And there's some really, really good character stuff. Lots of really good character beats, but by far one of the best ones becomes this really horrible confession from Mariah. Um, Tilda's talking about Cornell and um, Pete and what she remembers of the family and stuff uh, and what she remembers of her father and, uh, you know, how close she was to Cornell and stuff like that. And then Mariah reveals that your dad wasn't your daddy. You were Pete's child. This is why I've always pushed you away. You were Pete's child because he raped me and Cottonmouth, that that uncle that you um, that you idolized so much, I killed him, and I want nothing more to do with you. And it's horrible. It's it's this powerful scene with Mariah's dialogue just getting harsher every moment. Everything she says, every line out of her mouth, and and Tilda just growing more and more distraught. And you really feel for her, and. It's it's one of the first turning points against Mariah, um, you know. From she was already unlikable, but this is her on her way to becoming reprehensible and really starting her villain villainous turn. Um, you know, like one of the later episodes. In fact, I think it might even be the next episode, which is generally quite a light-hearted affair. It supposedly starts, like, three days later, according to a news report, but you wouldn't know that to actually see anything in the episode. Um, the, you know, the way the characters act was like last night was last night. Uh, you know, the events of the previous episode were last night. Um, and Danny comes in. Danny Rand comes in and teams up with Luke to help him. And because Danny's like, yeah, you, it seems like you need a friend. And... It's really great to see him because Danny's so positive in this episode in a way that I don't think he ever was in Luke Cage season one or Defenders. And it was a good sort of prelude to what we might see in Iron Fist season two. Although having watched Iron Fist since, it's he seems different in this than he ever was. And I think they were trying to push the Heroes for Hire narrative um because obviously in the comics danny and luke are best friends 
you know, um, you know, Luke and Jessica have a child in the comics, and they named their daughter after Danny. <laughs> you know, that's how close Luke and Danny are. Um, and it's really great. They've got they've got good chemistry. They've got good lines between them. Um, and there's some really good stuff, but the the standout scene of the episode is the finale, which is this incredibly dark moment because Mariah, who by this point has lost everything and has pushed Tilda away, which was like the last thing she had, she captures um, Anansi, who is um, Bushmaster's father, I think, or or grandfather or uncle. Something like that. Um, like one of the heads of the family for the Stylers. And he owns this restaurant. And Mariah basically takes Anansi into the restaurant. Um, and has her men kill everyone inside the restaurant. And burns Anansi alive to burn the entire restaurant down. And it's the darkest we've ever seen Mariah, and it's just this powerful scene, and we have no sympathy left for her at this point. Even Shades seems, like, completely shaken by her her actions. Um, she returns to Harlem's Paradise, like, taking it back off of Bushmaster, and we see that she's replaced the the picture that she had with the biggie poster again so she has now become this solo villain um as the queen of harlem you know so she's become the main villain of the series by this point and it's great and we get flashbacks after that um with, uh, you know, Bushmaster, John McIvers, his name is, um, and Mariah as children in Jamaica, and Pete and Mabel are back in it again. And it feels unnecessary because all of the events had been described earlier on in the series, except for Pete shooting John when he was a child. But having the actors back for Mabel and Pete lets them um taunt Mariah in the president as like in the present as like hallucinations which is really well done um and kind of shows that she's maybe a bit becoming a bit more unhinged and then Luke kind of decides you know well if we get rid of Mariah and we get rid of Bushmaster, someone has to take over. And he does it. And But it's Shades is the, the, the real one that's transformed because his remorse over everything and everything he's done for Mariah, from the massacre at the, the restaurant to um, uh, to killing uh, Chi, Comanche, um, it just sends him to Misty and he teams up with Misty to try and take Mariah down and just confesses everything to Misty and like 
Luke and Bushmaster team up to try and deal with triads and, and other stuff as well who are moving into the territory. Um, you know, and you get Shade's confession. <sighs> it's it's all very, very well done. And we get, um, you know, we get another kind of siege at Harlem's Paradise with Shades wearing a wire, um, trying to get a confession out of Mariah. Um, Bushmaster attacks. Um, he's been given this, this new version of his potion by Tilda. Um, so he's now attacking Mariah and Luke then has to come and defend her. And it's like all the allegiances have just changed sort of so quickly. <laughs> um, but, you know, the battle is good and everyone feels at the right point in their character arcs. And it's really well done. Like, there's there's one point where, like, Luke is throttling Bushmaster and getting sort of taunted on by Mariah. And then Misty's voice just kind of cuts through, telling him to stop. And it's a really good use of sound mixing, like for dramatic effect. <sighs> Feels like I'm talking more about um, Mariah and Shades and Misty and all the others than and Bushmaster, etc. Than I am on Luke, and it's because it feels like um, Black Panther in a way. In Black Panther, the character of T'Challa is kind of fair, fairly static. And he gets influenced by the characters around him. Um, you know, Nakia, Okoye, Killmonger, his mother, his sister. <sighs> That's kind of what this feels like. It's Luke is just trying to get by. But it's how everyone else interacts with him. And how they interact with each other. And how the situation in Harlem changes. That sort of motivates him. You know, he's, you know, since he broke up with Claire, he's become angry and that anger is transforming him. And Misty and Danny have tried to help him and it's just not working. And, you know, he resolves to take over. He says he's going to build a wall to protect Harlem um, by sort of taking over. And... You know, we see that in the final episode. He goes out and he becomes an anti-hero and he, he kind of crosses lines that we wouldn't necessarily have thought he would. But even then we get scenes like Mariah in prison. And she manages to have... Th through Donovan, she manages to get everyone linked with her. Everyone who worked at Harlem's Paradise... Even, like, her trusted assistant, Alex, who was part of her public job, not part of her criminal job. She orders them all killed. And, you know, Alex's death becomes really shocking. Like, we didn't think he, she'd go that far. The, the only one she decides to spare is Sugar. And the reason being, when she lost everything earlier in the season... Sugar, um, Sugar got her clothes from his wife because she had nothing. And that's the only reason she spares him. And it's like, 
it's a real look at how complex her motives can be while at the same time she can be completely evil <laughs> honestly i have no idea how alfrey woodard didn't get um an emmy nomination for this like not even necessarily a win just a nomination cuz yeah season 2 2018 it was definitely one of the best performances I saw her on a television show that year was her as Mariah. And it was it was brilliant. And then and then to top it all off, she gets killed in prison by Tilda, who has already gone to Harlem's Paradise and played on uh, Cottonmouth's keyboard and sung this song which kind of ended up kind of narrating the show um like it had a, there was a lot of narrative convenience to the lyrics um but it sort of almost briefly turned the show into a musical um but then she put something on her lipstick and gave her mother a kiss and that kills mariah and that reveal is unexpected but not necessarily unwelcome um bushman bushmaster manages to like ride off into the sunset like he's got his revenge and he's wounded but you know he's he goes off um sort of escapes any consequences but then at the same time with what happened with the massacre i think bushmaster's kind of been punished enough so i'm kind of okay with that um, Shades' plea deal falls through because obviously Mariah's dead so then Misty comes and is able to arrest him and she feels quite happy about that but then we find the final sort of punchline from Mariah she's left Harlem's paradise to Luke so Luke takes over in this awesome suit as the king in Harlem's Paradise with the Biggie poster behind him and everything and yeah he, he's got sugar there as his right hand um, he's lost most of his friends even Claire comes back like we, we don't get to see her but we get told that she's there and Luke says send her home and he goes to meet with gang bosses. It's great. I think I think season two does so well. Um, I think Luke Cage in general was a phenomenal show, and season two and like season two picks up brilliantly from where season one left it and keeps its focus more than season one maybe did. Um, you know, all the characters keep moving. They all have these rich character arcs and plots that develop all of them. Um, the only one who maybe falls by the wayside is James Lucas, and does, that doesn't really get a conclusion. But that might be because the actor Reg Cathy um died uh before the show was released, and I wonder if it was. You know, because of his illness, is that why he kind of disappears after episode nine without necessarily the conclusion that Ark could have got? Uh, 
the only thing is it was obviously setting up for a third season at the end um you know there was an obvious intention to build up probably as an adaptation of the the Shadowlands series um which is one that involves Daredevil um in the comics it involves Daredevil joining the hand but I'm wondering if the adaptation in Luke Cage would have had Luke as sort of the leader of Harlem's underworld while also sort of trying to be a good person as well and the dichotomy of that but you know this the series has a satisfying enough conclusion. Like Luke's new position seems to both fit him and Harlem, but at the same time, we also seem to have Misty there ready to take him down if need be. And it's like, she's on a position to maybe get captaincy in the police. So she'd have more power to do that. And it feels like with Mariah dead and shades imprisoned as well, that the four main characters have all concluded their story arcs in pretty satisfying ways. The only criticism I have of season two, and it's a minor one, but it's also one of the biggest criticisms I can level against it, because I really like season two, is the Jamaicans. The Stylers are all meant to be a Jamaican gang, but all of them are played by non-Jamaican actors. Most notably, Bushmaster is played by uh, Mustafa Shakir. Um, and the problem is, Jamaicans obviously have a very specific accent. And when a Jamaican accent is done badly, you can tell. And some of them have very, very bad accents. Some of them are great. Like, some of them are, are quite good. Like, Bushmaster is generally very good with his accent. But, for example, a Nancy, a Nancy's accent can be very, very wonky at times. And it's a shame because... While I don't think I necessarily changed those actors in the roles, I think they all did a very good job the accents do draw you out of it. Especially, you know, if you've spent time around actual Jamaican people, <laughs> you know, people with the, the real Jamaican accents, you can see and you can hear how bad those accents are. <laughs> Some of them are very, very bad because Jamaican is not just an accent, it's the patois as well. And they're all trying it and it's good, it's all in the script, but oh yeah, some of them are not good at it. And it's a shame. Because it's the one thing that I think lets the season down. Iron Fist has been in development at Marvel for a long time. Um I think it was originally announced in two thousand. Um, that Iron Fist was being developed as a movie um, uh, under Marvel Studios and Artisan Entertainment. 
the original plan was to have Ray Park, who at the time was uh, obviously quite well known as a martial artist for his work in um, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and uh, his recent turn as Toad in the X-Men movie. Um, he was going to play Danny Rand. However, it went through multiple directors and never appeared. And then obviously Marvel started to finance their own films rather than link with other production houses. And at one point they did hire a group of writers to develop some of their lesser known properties. And Iron Fist was included on that list of properties um, to be developed into a movie. And this isn't uncommon. Movie studios regularly will um, get people to write scripts or pitch scripts to them. Um, whether they get made or not. So I think of those scripts, I don't think any of them have materialised um, for those properties because there were several on the list, including Power Pack, Cable, and a few others that I don't think have actually appeared in films, or at least not in their own films. Obviously, Cable appeared in Deadpool 2. But eventually, Iron Fist was revealed as part of the Netflix deal. Now, Iron Fist is the worst show, collectively, of the Marvel Netflix series. And I don't think it's unfair to say that. I don't think it's it's news to most people that I've said that. It, it The first season, especially, was very harshly criticised for its writing and its tone... And all sorts of issues that meant that it it did not go over well, did not have a great critical reception. I think it's uh, the first season has a twenty percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is the I think the lowest in the MCU. Um, I think possibly in humans might come lower. Um, and they were saying it's just it's just weighed down by an absence of momentum and originality, which is a harsh critique. That said, I do think there are some good things in it. And the second season does improve um, quite a lot, but still not quite enough to save it. It's still definitely the... Uh, um, you know, sort of the lesser respected sibling um, of the, the Marvel Netflix shows. And there's a multitude of reasons why that might be. Iron Fist is, like I said, it's about the character of uh, Danny Rand, uh, Iron Fist, who I explained earlier. He has this mystical power of the Iron Fist, um, taught to him by secret monks. And... He's played by Finn Jones, whose biggest role before this was playing the character of Loras Terrell in Game of Thrones. And I don't think he does a bad job necessarily. He's quite a charming actor. Um, the problem is a lot of the, the scenes he's given, unfortunately. Um, a lot of the writing that he has to deal with. Um... The other main character in the cast is uh, Colleen Wing, um, played by Jessica Henwick. Jessica Henwick has made um, a bit of a name for herself as certain characters uh, in the modern day. 
she played an X-Wing pilot called Jessica Parva in Star Wars The Force Awakens. She was Numeria Sand in Game of Thrones. Uh, she's recently played the character Bugs in The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, the other main castings are Jessica Stroop and Tom Palfrey as um, Joy and Ward Meacham. Um, so the Meacham family, um, the father of whom is, is played by uh, David Wenham. He plays Harold Meacham. The Meachams went into business with the Rands. Um, you know, so Ward and Joy were basically quite close to Danny as children since uh, the accident with the Rands disappeared the Meachams have kind of assumed control of Rand Enterprises and Harold Meacham has disappeared presumed dead um, sometime before Danny returns to New York and as a result Ward and Joy are running the company along with the, the board of shareholders However, it turns out that um, Harold obviously isn't dead and is in hiding due to the hand. Um, so that becomes obviously a key plot point. And then the final main member of the cast is Sasha Dewan, who most people will probably recognise now from his recent turn as the Master in Doctor Who, where he went up against uh, Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor. And he plays a character called Davos, who was raised in Kunlun with Danny, and is known in the comic books as a character called the Steel Serpent and one of Iron Fist's villains. Uh, Ramon Rodriguez, who played a character in The Wire, um, he also stars as Hand Leader Bakuto, who I mentioned when I was talking about Defenders. Um, he is Colleen Wing's mentor um, for a large portion of season one. Um, and Madame Gao returns as well, um, and as does Claire Temple from previous shows. Now, Iron Fist was originated with showrunner Scott Buck. Um, Scott Buck has kind of taken um, a bit of a negative turn recently with his handling of both Iron Fist and Inhumans, which he also was showrunner for both of which received overwhelmingly negative reviews. However, looking at the man's career, he has a pretty successful career on a lot of shows. He was a, a staff writer and producer on um, Six Feet Under, Rome, um, and numerous other shows. But most prominently, he was a co-executive producer and writer on Dexter from its second season onwards and became showrunner for the last three seasons of the show. So, you know, I, I know people aren't fans of the way Dexter ended, but people are quite, you know, they show a lot of vocal praise towards the show in general. So, clearly he can't be bad at his job. He's just misstepped um, with his work for Marvel. And I don't think he's done anything since, which is a shame. I'm not sure. Maybe those last three seasons of Dexter are where it starts its decline that leads to the ending. I don't know. I've, I've not actually watched it myself. I'll have to ask my partner. Now, as I said, Iron Fist has 
problems. There's no denying that it has problems. Many people far better at critical analysis than me have dissected the problems already. But I always remember that every time I watch Iron Fist, while there are issues with it, I always find a lot more to... In I always find quite a bit to enjoy, despite the problems. Um... You know, one of the biggest problems is the story is very, very slow to start. Obviously, with, um, you know, at the time the first season of Iron Fist debuted, we'd had um, Daredevil and Jessica Jones, which both had very strong openings in their their first episodes of each of their seasons for both of Daredevil's second seasons. As, as muddled as the story got in the second season, the opening episode was fantastic. Um, and then, obviously, Luke Cage, which spread its opening moments out more throughout the first two or three episodes but we were already invested in that character from Jessica Jones and there were good events in those episodes whereas the first four episodes of Iron Fist season one kind of meander a bit you know Danny returns to New York and is trying to prove who he is and return to his company and obviously you know he is sent away by Ward and Joy and has to kind of prove who he is to them. And it's it's just very long and drawn out because obviously they're thinking, oh, this is someone just coming to steal steal our money, steal our company from us by pretending to be Danny. And, you know, he teams up with Hogarth to sort of become... You know, all these episodes, all these ideas that get introduced in the first episode take several episodes to finally pay off. Um, you know, the whole idea of him getting his identity back isn't resolved until like the fourth episode. You know, he finds out that Harold is still alive and um, the ward knows Harold is still alive, but that becomes sort of a minor plot point later on. Sorry, minor plot point at first and becomes a, a major thing later on as the series goes on. And it's just it's just muddled and kind of drags and you know, and it's not helped by how cheap some things look. Um, you know, apparently the production on Iron Fist was pretty rushed because obviously they were coming down to the wire in terms of trying to get it out, the castings all came quite late. Um, and then obviously there was the work for the Defenders, which was building up in the background as well. And, you know, I think um, Finn Jones said that he only got like a month's break um, between Iron Fist and Defenders. That's sort of how rushed things were before, you know, he finished filming Iron Fist and had to go straight on to Defenders. And... <sighs> You know, this is probably where some of the problems come in. Like, there's there's visual effects to transition to the flashbacks. And quite a few of them look really cheap. A couple of them are quite clever. Like, there's a white bedsheet that transitions into snow-covered mountaintop. That one's done quite well. But some of the others are really sort of... Um, you, you know, I've seen people make better special effects for YouTube videos. Um, with software that they have at home. Um, so it's a shame to see it in a, what is ostensibly a, a big budget show. And then one of the other things that gets critiqued quite a lot, and 
again, deservedly so, is the action scenes. You know, Finn Jones was cast in the role of Danny in February 2016. Um, it was His casting wasn't revealed until a couple of months later publicly. Um, but the show was released in uh, March 2017. So obviously it was filming for several months, then went into post-production. So it means he didn't have a lot of time to, to do things like uh, fight choreography, for example, or, or they didn't have, um, they didn't have a, a lot of time to prepare elaborate stunt sequences. Um, in fact, the action director has made recent headlines by criticizing Finn Jones over this and saying, you know, he was coming up with ideas and then the actor didn't want to train. That was his exact quote. Um, the thing is, though, Finn Jones has also spoken and said that, you know, he was doing 12 to 15 hour days, uh, quite often as night shoots as well. A lot of the show takes place at night um, in New York. And sometimes, you know, at, at the end of a 12 to 15 hour day of filming, you're too tired to train. And it meant that a lot of the time as well, he'd be sort of blocking out action sequences 30 minutes before shooting them. And it, it does show in the final product that everything is a bit rough around the edges. Everything is not as tight and not as fluid as it could be. Uh, and as you'd expect it to be. And it means that you know, as skilled as Danny Rand is meant to be as a martial artist, he looks inferior when compared to someone like Daredevil, or even to, you know, someone who brawls like Luke Cage or Jessica Jones, because they had more practice with their action work. As a result, the best, the the character who comes across as a much more talented martial artist, because the actress Jessica Henwick was able to put more time into training, is Colleen Wing. You know, Colleen Wing has several scenes in the the first season where she's uh, in, like, an underground fight club. And she does a brilliant job of just, you know, seeming to be a strong warrior. And it works very well, but it affects how strong the lead of the show feels. Now, Danny is set up quite early on as the, the person who is to fight the hand. That's what he believes his role is as the Iron Fist. The Iron Fist is the, the champion of Kunlun against the hand. Uh, and that becomes something that Harold becomes very, very interested in very, very quickly. Because, obviously, he wants to, to, to deal with the hand because they are pursuing him. Now, it's revealed that Harold did actually die of cancer but was revived to serve the Hand while they use Rand Enterprises for their own goals. And he's under their control. Joy doesn't know that he's alive. Only Ward does. And, you know, he continues to run Rand Enterprises in private using Ward as a proxy, which is a great idea. And he wants Danny to help release the Hand's control over him. You know, and he helps Danny by giving Danny control of Rand Enterprises so that he can identify the hands operatives in the company. Um, but at the same time, he has this 
turbulent relationship with Ward that results in Ward stabbing him and killing him at one point, um, which then sends Ward on a, a downward spiral that leads to to sort of narcotics and plenty of bad decisions. But due to his treatment by the hand, Harold is able to resurrect again. And that makes him even more unstable and dangerous. And then at this point, Joy finds out he's alive. And (sighs) Harold gradually morphs into the main villain of the show. Um... You know, it's it's revealed that his his goal has been always been to try and take control of the company for himself. Like he, I think it's revealed as well that he sabotaged the the Rand plane, so he was responsible for the accident that killed Danny's parents. Um, which leads to him being the main villain, being the main opponent, not the hand. Despite all the episodes that we have where. Danny's investigating the hand like he gets summoned to an underground tournament and fights some other fighters that have been selected by Gao. He ends up travelling to China at one point with Claire and Colleen. (sighs) Yeah, it's... It's not great. You know, even even when Danny's dealing with the hand like when he's dealing with Bakuto and he, he... Colleen tries to suggest to him that maybe there's a good side to the hand as well, and that maybe Danny's misjudged them, which is a really interesting idea, but it's just pulled off so badly. (laughs) One thing I do quite like considering the limited budget is the special effect for the Iron Fist. It's They make it look like Danny's hand is glowing from within, and it's a really good effect of channeling the chi because um in the comics whenever danny uses the iron fist his hand gets surrounded by like a crackle of energy um which he's then able to wield whereas in this it's like it's not the energy around the hand it's the energy coming from within his body and i think it works as a much better visual um and i do wonder if uh if that maybe was where a lot of the budget went for special effects, which is a shame. Um, And he does some cool things with it. Like, there's one point where they fight... um, Not the hand, I think it's triads, because there's some issues with the triads dealing with the hand. And the triads come at him with, like, double hatchets, like a hatchet in each hand. And at one point, he solidifies the fist and catches a hatchet on it, so then the hatchet cracks... Like, the metal axe head just shatters when it hits his hand. And it's like, that's a really good use of the fist. But then, quite a lot of the time in in the show, Danny's kind of struggling to channel the fist. And it becomes so obvious that it's being done because of issues with the budget. As bad as the plot is, though, and, and as bad as some of the action scenes are, and... Uh, you know, some of the twists and turns in the plot. There are some great moments, and a lot of them are built around the characters. Like, there's this quite lovely scene where um, Danny sends a load of M&Ms 
to Joy to try and prove who he is. And he's taken out like her least favourite colour. All, all, all of her least favourite colour is gone. And it's something that only Danny would know. And it clearly has an effect on Joy. It clearly moves her. And so, you know, she, she acts that very well. And it's a nice little character beat. Or, um, you know, Hogarth's appearance, which is more than a cameo. It's quite extended. She's in several episodes. Um, you know, she... Danny is able to convince her very, very quickly by telling a story of when he was younger and she used to work at Rand. And as a result, they have a quite a nice relationship where, and it, it gives you the softer side to Hogarth, which you didn't really see in Jessica Jones season one. And that's just a nice, just a nice inclusion. And, you know, you got their, their bond or, or even like, Danny ends up doing a press conference to sort of explain, because the police, uh, when he first arrived, Ward had him sent to a, a mental hospital um, before he escaped using the Iron Fist. And, um, you know, the press have found out about that, so they ask him about it, where he's at the press conference, where he's announced as his return. And he immediately covers for Ward, knowing that it's obviously a really awkward question to be asked and he covers for him brilliantly and and takes the fall for it and it shows that compassion or you know another scene where it shows the compassion is they're talking about pricing a drug like a, this revolutionary cure for some disease and they want to to you know the board of shareholders obviously want to price it quite high and make quite a lot of money off of it and Danny's like no we'll sell it at cost you know it's, it's medicine we'll sell it at cost and it's a good way of showing the the contrast between the the sort of cutthroat capitalist you know business world that the Minchams live in and how unkind that can be and then showing what a generous person Danny is himself I think I do think he plays the role really well, and he does it with a, a enough charm that you care about the character, despite everything that goes on. Although one curious uh, quirk that never gets addressed by Danny returning to the world is how did he react when he learnt about the Battle of New York? Because the incident, as they describe it, is obviously a thing throughout the the Marvel Netflix verse. Um, you know, because ostensibly they are in the the MCU, although the the references got less and less as the the shows went on. So it's like, yeah, how did how did Danny react on finding out that aliens are real? <laughs> you know, you disappear for ten years, you come back, and all the superheroes and aliens and gods and all sorts of stuff. I, I I'm curious to see how he would have reacted to that, um, but we never get that. We do get some curious decisions, like uh, Claire ends up helping them fight the hand while they're in China um, which is a bit weird because it's like she holds her own, her own against a hand ninja despite the fact she's probably only had what at most is a few weeks training under Colleen um, which becomes a bit unbelievable um, you know, stretches credibility a bit Davos 
is where the series takes a turn, though. Um, he gets introduced quite late into the show. And, you know, we see him do some really cool things, like he throws some fo- uh, some throwing stars that he's made out of tinfoil um, as weapons, which are really cool. And, you know, he comes to rescue Danny from Bakuto's hand, who are also kind of set up as a, a, a group in opposition to Gao's hand, which, again, was sort of the, the divides between them that we hadn't had explained at this point, because this was the series that revealed that Gao was a member of the Hand, and then reveals that Bakuto is a member of the Hand as well, but a different Hand. And, as I was saying in my Defenders review, this is something that that kind of cleared up. And Davos sort of arrives at this quite interesting point in the narrative, where it seems like the Hand has been dealt with, with Bakuto. It feels like, well, not dealt with, but kind of pushed to the side. Gao has been pushed to the side. Harold's plotline is kind of meandering, but Ward has gone absent from it, and he was quickly becoming the most interesting part of it. You know, seeing him put through the emotional ringer by his father, and then how he's coping with that, with, um, you know, a, a sort of an ongoing drug addiction. You know, especially when he has to lie to his sister. And we show that, that Davos... Davos is apparently Danny's friend... But they don't feel like friends in the modern day. Davos is desperately trying to get Danny to come back to Kunlun with him, saying that the Iron Fish should be in Kunlun to protect it. And Danny doesn't want to go back. And and it becomes clear that Davos is also jealous of Danny. Like Davos says, he was as good. As Danny, and he feels like if Danny doesn't want to come back and doesn't want to be the Iron Fist and fulfill his role, then he shouldn't have the Iron Fist. And that then becomes set up more for for season one, uh, for the second season. There's also a really bizarre choice to use split screen in one of the late episodes, um, during one of the action scenes, which is weird. I'm not I'm not sure why that choice was made. Split screen rarely works in a film. The most prominent example I can think of that tried it, especially for comic book films, was Ang Lee's Hulk film, where they tried to do the split screen as a a sort of way of echoing the comic book panels. Um and it didn't really work even there, despite it giving us multiple takes of the same scene showing different characters reacting and it was it was an interesting idea but even then i don't think it worked so to do it here over an action scene rather than a quiet character beat is even weirder <laughs> but yeah everything concludes they managed to to beat harold and kill him off and gal disappears and um you know joy is hurt by ward and danny lying to her and um, Davos kind of approaches her with Gal kind of listening in the background as um, you know Davos tries to get Joy on side to help him help him deal with Danny Rand and Danny and Colleen go to the Alps and find like I said earlier that Kunlun has been attacked and has disappeared early 
and yeah, it's plots. Parts of this plot just drag for season one, especially. I, I've said before that some of the other seasons felt like they were padded, especially in the early seasons. And Iron Fist is the biggest one. So much of it feels so drawn out unnecessarily. Like, you could have cut these 13 episodes into about eight by getting rid of some of the superfluous scenes and streamlining the story a bit more, and you wouldn't have lost much. You wouldn't. You really wouldn't. You'd have lost, I'd, I'd say, ten episodes at the least. At the most, sorry. Um, and you wouldn't have lost much. Um, you know, the character work is, is quite good. Although not necessarily engaging for every character. You know, Danny, Colleen, Ward, uh, they all kind of shine. But then some like Harold, Joy, whose character kind of, kind of flip-flops a bit. Um, you know, she becomes very antagonistic towards the end. Um, you know, don't... They're not quite as interesting. <sighs> It becomes a bit unfocused in terms of what the story is trying to tell and who the main antagonist is. Because there's Gal, there's Bakuto, there's Harold, there's Davos. And the action scenes just don't help. It's like they're competent, but like barely competent. You know, there, there are some cool shots and some cool stunts occasionally. But compared to, to Daredevil, it just pales. And that's a shame, because I think then we're judging the show necessarily on what it isn't, rather than what it is. Season 2 does improve. Um, you know, one of the biggest subtle improvements I found with Season 2 was it just changed the font on the title sequence, and suddenly the title sequence was better. It just felt more more real. The music didn't change, the visuals didn't change. But the font changed and the colour of the text changed and it made it feel more Eastern in a way than it did before. It sounds weird, but it's kind of hard to explain. It For me, it just worked more with the new font. It was more finished, I suppose, is the best way of describing it. As to the series itself, the action scenes are a lot better um, there's better choreography, there's better direction. The plot line is perhaps a bit more focused, but still not brilliant. Um, I think your mileage for the season two will vary depending on your investment in the characters. Um, you know, while I quite like Danny and Colleen and Ward, Davos and Joy, I wasn't quite as involved with. And Davos becomes the main villain of season two. Um, you know, using Joy to help him. And they introduce a, a new character as well, played by Alice Eve. Um, now, Alice Eve is probably most famous to most people for uh, her role as Carol Marcus in Star Trek Into Darkness, where she gets the the gratuitous shot of her in, the un in her underwear. Um... And she comes in as a version of the character Typhoid Mary um, from the comics, who is this um, 
a character with disassociative identity disorder um, where one of her sides is Mary Walker. Uh, sorry, is Mary. And Mary is um, a sort of quite quiet, you know, unassuming woman. And then the other half is Walker. And Walker is this quite aggressive personality who gets hired by um, Joy and Davos to take down Danny and bring him in unconscious so that Davos can steal the Iron Fist from him, which he does, which gives Davos the Iron Fist. And Davos's Iron Fist, um, perhaps as a sign of his aggression, is red, unlike Danny's kind of golden yellow one. Um... And it's not bad. It's the only problem is you then have the main hero depowered, and Davos doing what Danny should do, but much more brutally, because he's not going after the hand. He's going after like street thugs, and taking on the role. I should also add, season two had a brand new showrunner. Uh, the showrunner was now uh, Raven Metzner, who got his start as a writer on Elektra like the Electra movie, um, before working on shows uh, including Heroes Reborn. Um, and he's he does a decent job. Um, and the show is also streamlined down to 10 episodes now. It had its episode count reduced. It was the only one that had its episode count reduced with the following season. Um, all the others still got 13 episode seasons. Iron Fist got got 10 um you know we also had misty um in a recurring role um from luke cage where she's considering her promotion to captain and sort of teams up with colleen to help danny get his powers back and we're also dealing with uh, a triad war like the triads were obviously they appeared in the previous season um we're now the location of the show has moved to Chinatown it's gone from Wall Street to Chinatown which is good because the Wall Street stuff was not working and the Chinatown stuff definitely does we've got Danny as kind of the local hero the local vigilante um you know in the same way that Daredevil is very much based in Hell's Kitchen and Luke Cage is very much based in Harlem this is now very much based in Chinatown and it works and it it helps to improve the tone and the quality of the show and the feel of the show but you know and and Colleen becomes a big part of this and um you know it turns out the police are investigating the triads which is how Misty becomes involved as well um because Colleen and Danny tried to negotiate like a, a ceasefire between different groups um but he noticed someone outside and it turns out the person he noticed outside was a police officer he thought it was someone coming to attack um yeah it, it's done quite well ward gets a nice plot line he's um at narcotics anonymous he's having sex with his sponsor and shouldn't be and she ends up pregnant and then he debates what to do about that. You know, he wants to to get better and to to support a child, which is lovely. I I, I think it's interesting. Bethany says she doesn't want any help. Um, that's his sponsor. She says she doesn't want any help 
uh, with the baby, but he still wants to prove that he can be a better person. And, you know, I think it continues his plotline quite well, because Ward as a character, when he first appeared, I didn't like him much, and he really grew on me, as throughout season one you see just how much he's going through um, once you learn of the situation with his father. And season two does a really good job of continuing that. Joy's anger at Danny feels misplaced though um you know she sort of she sort of blames danny for like her life unraveling you know like finding out her father was still alive and yeah the only issue i have with that is that She she sort of blames Danny because it was Danny coming back that had her find all that out. But it's unclear why she's not... Surely she'd be more angry at Ward for hiding the fact that her father was alive. It's, it's a bit of a sudden tonal shift to then have her want to kill Danny and willingly team up with Davos to do it and go to some quite cruel lengths. Like getting Davos to sleep with one of her friends so that she can then blackmail her friend to get something that they need for the for the ritual um, to steal the Iron Fist. Walker doesn't disappear after her um, subplot. She carries on. She explores the possibility that she has a, a third altar. She says she was a soldier who served in Sokovia as well. And, like, she got um, imprisoned in Sokovia. And Walker broke her out. Um, but then it's revealed that no, Walker didn't break her out. Like a third altar broke them out. Which is a really interesting idea. Um, and would have been lovely to see developed in a future season. But alas, that's not going to happen now. Um, Typho Mary is one of the more interesting characters in the comics. With the multiple personalities. She's one of... One of a few characters I can think of with disassociative identity disorder in comics where people haven't just done it as like oh she's crazy it's like no each of her you know she's a villain but each of her alters forms a specific role for her you know one is more vengeful one's more protective one's more innocent and that's kind of what they that's kind of what they do with this, and I think it works quite well. I think it's a decent adaptation of the character. But as the series goes on, obviously they deal with the Triad War. Um Colleen starts taking more of an active role, teaming up with Misty. You know, she's the one helping Danny to, to get his powers back. Danny ends up with his leg broken after fighting with Davos. At one point, so obviously him trying to heal from that um, puts him out of action even further. And so you get this evolution of Colleen as the main character. She's the one negotiating the peace with the triad gangs. She's the one, um, you know, trying to, to get the power back for Danny. She's the one helping Danny train. Um, 
and you you also get this these hints that she has a connection to Kunlun. She has this um this box with a, her family crest on, and her family crest looks very very similar to the dragon tattoo that Danny has on his chest, suggesting that you know she her family has a connection to Kunlun. Which is obviously then explained in the final episode as a, presumably what would have been set up for a future season. Um, that her her grandmother, great-grandmother, was a, a pirate queen. One of her ancestors was a pirate queen who was linked to the Iron Fist. But her gradual evolution involves culminates with Danny choosing her to have the Iron Fist. So, obviously, the deal with um, Davos Joy helps them by betraying Davos, and they manage to capture him and give the power to Colleen. And so, Colleen now ends up with the Iron Fist, and hers is white, which is really good. She's got like this nice white with like a blue tinge to it fist, um, showing sort of her purity. In a way, which I really like. Uh, and I like that all three characters have very different takes on the fist. They have different colours for their fist. Because obviously it's based on chi. And chi and, you know, a person's chi is meant to be kind of unique to them. Um, and I, yeah, I just think it was a really nice touch. We also get, um, you know, some good... We also get some great conclusions at the end. Um, obviously, like I said, we got the the tease of um, Colleen being connected to um, Kunlun, with her family crest essentially being um, a reverse of um, Shao Lao's mark, the dragon's mark that's on Danny. Um, Danny decides to explore. A previous Iron Fist named Orson Randall, um, who had the Iron Fist powers and whose body Davos used to, as part of the ritual. And so he teams up with Ward. He leaves the country with Ward after Ward is very open and honest at Narcotics Anonymous. Um, you know he he'd been at NA, but he hadn't really spoken. Um, and this was him sort of speaking um, to N.A. And it was good because he was, while he's speaking to N.A. and through them to Bethany, who's also there, he's perhaps truly honest with himself for the first time ever and resolves to be better. And it's like his character arcs come full circle. It's quite nice. He's got a very realised character arc over the two seasons. And he teams up with Danny and they leave the country. And then we jump forward a few months in time and Colleen has the Iron Fist and she's now channeling the Iron Fist through her sword as a vigilante in New York. And we then see Danny has also got the fist back and he's now able to channel it through both hands through guns, which he uses to shoot someone's bullets out of the sky, out of the air, sorry. Uh, as they're travelling towards him. And yeah, it, it was all just interesting setup right in the final moments for 
what would have presumably been a really good third season. Like apparently um, the showrunner and was working on the third season. Finn Jones knew about it, said it would have been really good. Um, you know, and if the final scenes were anything to go by, it had a, a lot of promise. It would have featured um, Danny and Ward traveling the world in like a, a buddy story. Um, with Rand really fully assuming the role of the Iron Fist for the first time. Um, and Wing in New York struggling to come to terms with both her history but also her new power before the two of them reunite. And it could have been really good. You know, the only problem, if anything, is perhaps maybe there's a bit too much set up for the future in this final episode um, between... You know, Mary and Ward and Danny and Colleen and Misty and everything else. But it's good. The characters all kind of go through character arcs this season. Even Joy, um, you know, despite how different she feels at the start from the character that we've known in the first season... You know, even supporting characters go through character arcs. Like, there's a... The triad leader ends up killed, so his wife takes over the role. Um, there's a, a gang of street thugs that um, kind of end up as part of Davos's group. He, like, trains them. And, you know, one of them is very conflicted about that. He goes through a character arc. And it could have led to something good and... Hopefully there's a future for the characters somewhere. Especially because, you know, Marvel has hinted that, the, you know, Iron Fist was the first one to be cancelled. Um, and Marvel hinted that the characters would return. Like, even Jessica Henwick got offered a role in Shang-Chi and she turned it down because she felt that accepting the role of Zhai Ling in Shang-Chi would mean that she couldn't come back as Colleen Wing, and she'd much rather come back as Colleen. And, you know, off the back of this season, fans were talking about perhaps doing a Daughters of the Dragon series with um, Colleen and Misty teamed up, because their chemistry is perfect throughout the latter half of the season. So it would have been nice to... It would have been nice to have that continue. So, hopefully these characters will come back somewhere because I think there's a lot of potential there despite the flaws. And now finally, before we discuss uh, Daredevil Season 3, I'm going to have a quick look at The Punisher. Now, The Punisher series obviously spins off from the character that was introduced in Daredevil Season 2. So that version of Frank Castle, played by John Bernthal, who is absolutely brilliant in the role, I do have to say. It's not the first adaptation of The Punisher into live action, though. The Punisher has actually been adapted a number of times. Um, the first time was in the 80s with Dolph Lundgren in the role. Um, however, that version of The Punisher didn't use certain things that are generally associated with the character in the comics, most notably the skull vest. Um, the more famous version was the film by Thomas Jane, uh, sorry, not by Thomas Jane, starring Thomas Jane as the Punisher and featuring John Travolta as the villain Howard Saint. It's 
quite a quaint little film. It um, came out in 2004, 2005, I believe. It uh, lacks a lot of the more brutal violence that gets associated with the Punisher in the comics, um, as well as what this show um, sort of explores, because um, it got a PG-13 rating in the US. It's a good film, though. I do quite like it. I feel that the Thomas Jane film is the one that most especially illustrates the aspect of the Punisher being punishment um for example when he finds out about um howard saint's um involvement in killing his family and about howard saint's organization he resolves to to take it down effectively um by turning howard saint against his wife against his chief lieutenant by making them think they're having an affair turning him against his you know, which which leads to him killing them both. And it feels like he's punishing Howard Saint before he kills him. He feels like he's actually taking everything away and trying to destroy this man's life. Which fits, and I think is very good. And it's a good story. It was um, shot in Tampa, uh, Tampa in Florida. So it does actually take the character away from his New York roots. Um... But yeah, I do think it's a a good adaptation of the character, a very interesting one, and a way of showing that Punisher can work and be done just as effectively without a hard R rating, without an adult rating. Um, it was produced by Lionsgate in Columbia, and um, Marvel and Lionsgate then began development on a sequel. It wasn't particularly well received um it did make its budget back it um but uh critically it wasn't beloved but like i said i do think there's a certain charm to it um the sequel however was sort of less of a sequel and more of a reboot um and it's called punisher warzone it was directed by alexi alexander and i think she does a very good job with the direction um, it's, there's a lot of scenes in this film that feel more lifted directly from the comics, um, such as, um, assassinating a whole load of mob bosses at a banquet while hanging upside down from a chandelier. Um, and she was also quite ill during the production. They were filming on night shoots in Canada during winter. Um, so she got very ill and... Hearing her talk on the, the commentary for this film, it's quite clear that she put a lot of effort into it. And it's kind of a bit of a shame for her that it was, again, kind of critically savaged and was not very successful because I think it is what a lot of people were wanting from Punisher. It's got a lot of the more brutal, violent aspects. It's got... Um, one of the, his main villains from the comics and the character Jigsaw. Um, so it's definitely making an attempt to be closer to them, to, to, to shift closer to the Marvel comics. It featured a lot of characters who were involved in the Punisher comics at the time, like the character of Martin Soap, who's a, um, NYPD detective, um, trying to track down the Punisher, 
or um, the character of Microchip, who's played here by Wayne Knight, who does a a very brilliant job. Uh, I think that that was a fan casting that had been around for for several years. Uh, Ray Stevenson, who would go on to play Volstagg in the Marvel movies, uh, in the Thor films, um, plays the Punisher in this film, and he's he again does a very good job. He apparently read every issue he could find of the Punisher Max series um, before taking the role. He underwent endurance and martial arts and weapons training with like Force Recon Marines. You know, he, he really put effort into it, and it shows. Um, and, yeah, it, it's it's a good a good version of the character, a good film. Very cheesy in some moments. Some bits are very unintentionally funny. Um, like at one point where Punisher shoots a rocket towards a, a man through a door, and he's kind of sat there, like, as this rocket comes towards him and then explodes. It's, or uh, where he shoots... Again, a rocket at um, a man parkouring between two buildings and catches him mid-flip. But um, yeah, it's 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 worth a watch. I think I think both of the Punisher films are what both of those two Punisher films are worth a watch. The Dolph Lundgren one, not so much. Um, but if you're a fan of a character of the character, they're both worth a watch. Um, Warzone was also developed under what was going to be a Marvel Knights banner. Um, where Marvel is going to hopefully start making more of these sort of hard R films. Um, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, and so the rights reverted back to Marvel from Lionsgate. And that's how we saw Punisher get introduced in Daredevil Season 2. Obviously the success of the character and the the buzz that the character was generating even before the series released meant that um you know they they uh Netflix wanted a series of the Punisher and I think it was officially put into production in April 2016 which is only uh, a month after the release of Daredevil season 2 which gave you an indication of just how popular this take of the character was the series was showrun by Steve Lightfoot who uh, is more well-known as a, an executive producer and writer on Hannibal. He does a very, very good job. Um, again, he stays with Punisher for both seasons. And I think he does seem to get the character between him and John Bernthal. They've got the sympathetic side to the Punisher as well as how he is just a a, a brutal vengeance fueled machine of a man. And yeah, I think they do a, a very good job with the character. Because um, Punisher, I think it's quite easy to tell with the modern view on the Punisher, especially his popularity with groups like the alt-right. I think it's very easy to the character. See him as the person who goes to you know, he's, he's punishing the bad guys. That's his whole thing. It's like, no, the Punisher is, is mentally ill. He is unhinged. Um, you know, he sees you know, he sees his crusade against the underworld as, as like a duty. 
because you know he's he's driven to avenge his family you know to and i think at some point he just became addicted to killing like some of the comics have tried to approach this garth ennis's work especially approached this idea that the punisher just got addicted to killing in vietnam and never stopped and so yeah punisher is a character that's very easy to misunderstand but i think i think john bernthal and steve lightfoot in with this show show that they do understand the punisher they have the you know the more softer side to the punisher but also the but the whole aspect of he can't have a normal life he can't just switch off and go home this crusade is what he has it's the only thing he has and that doesn't make him a hero. It doesn't make him someone to idolise. It just makes him... useful. It makes him a tool. It makes him a weapon. But he's not a good person, necessarily. As I said before, Punisher doesn't tend to have a lot of supporting characters or villains. Um, mainly because a lot of people who interact with the Punisher end up dead. However, the series obviously has to have a supporting cast. So one of the main characters they brought over was Karen Page from Daredevil, uh, again played by Debran Wall. And I think her appearances in Daredevil and Defend in Punisher, Daredevil and Defenders actually make her the character that has appeared the most across the Netflix shows. Um the, we then get um the introduction of several other characters. Um, for season one, uh, Eben Mosbacharach um, joins the cast as uh, a version of Micro, um, who I'll discuss a bit more in a minute. Um, ben Barnes joins the... He's most famous as uh, a character in Westworld, Logan Delos, and uh, Prince Caspian in the Chronicles of Narnia films. He joins the cast... As one of Punisher's biggest villains, um, Billy Russo. Except in this, um, his his version of Billy Russo, uh, the character that becomes Jigsaw, uh, rather than being a gangster, is a former best friend of Frank Castle, um, who was with him as a soldier. And so that becomes a, a plot thread as well. Uh, Amber Rose Reaver, who is someone I'd not seen before, I don't think. Uh, she plays a Department of Homeland Security agent named Dina, Mada uh, Dina Madani. Um, and her stationing in New York leads to an investigation that has her cross paths with Frank. And then there's some other minor characters uh, for season one as well. Um, most notably uh, Curtis Hoyle, who is another former soldier, friend of Frank's, and one of the few people who knows he's still alive, um, who leads a therapy group um, for veterans after losing part of his leg. Um, and then a member of his therapy group um, named Lewis, who is a quite young army veteran who is struggling with his new life. Um 
and acts as kind of like a, a mirror to Frank's journey in season one. Now, the plot of season one, for the most part, is exploring um, the incident that led to Frank's family being killed. Obviously, we learned something about this in Daredevil season two, but we add an extra layer because obviously we knew that it was connected to the blacksmith who turned out to be Ray Schoonover, their supervising officer, when they were stationed in Kandahar. Um, the unit in Kandahar that um, Frank and Billy were members of obviously got up some illicit and uh, illegal activities, uh, one of which including the uh, torture and killing of one of Dina Madani's uh, informers, um, which she has footage of and wants to try and find the men responsible. But also they were linked to uh, covert operations with the CIA. Um, they had an overseer called uh, Rawlins. And Frank basically re rebelled against their orders, had a fight with Rawlins, which has left him injured. And essentially the murder of Frank's family and the attempted killing of Frank was done to try and silence him because of what he knew about their operations. Um, you know, everyone else was like a, a loyal company man, but because Frank had gone against it. And it, it's revealed towards the end of the series as well that Billy actually knew. Like, Billy was the one given the kill order, and he refused. He said, I can't do that. Frank is my friend. I've known him too long. But I won't stop you from killing him. And that's dark and twisted and brutal. And it's brilliantly done. And, you know, the main plot of season one features, obviously, Frank exploring this with the help of Micro. Uh, Micro is the one who leaked the information to Madani. He's also on the run from Rawlins after getting this information. Um, he thought the information came from Frank. It didn't. It came from uh, someone else in the unit who was believed dead. Um... And you know he wants he's he's in hiding. He's estranged from his family. Um, he's living in this this old disused public bathroom with like broken glass everywhere, um, with his computer set up and everything, uh, which is bizarre. But it actually turns out to be a, a really great set because it's used for a, an action set piece towards the end of the show where. Frank brutally kills a whole load of special forces that are sent after him. And yeah, it's a really interesting plot of, of you know, government corruption. Fits quite well in the modern day. Um, the sort of the, the post-9-11 modern era of political thriller. You know, it feels like something that would follow a show like Homeland, for example. But obviously at the start of the show, Frank has put the Punisher behind him. Like, there's an uh, an opening montage of, like, a prologue at the start of the first episode, which features Frank take down the final members of the, the cartel, the Dogs from Hell and the Kitchen Irish. Um, and 
some of the uh, the takedowns he does are fantastic. There's one he shoots the cartel leader in um, Mexico from across the border in El Paso, in Texas. So he shoots from Texas and gets a perfect headshot on someone in Mexico. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, it's uh, impressive. And then he burns the skull vest, you know. But then he meets Micro. And Micro's introduction is good, but Frank has, like, no knowledge of, of him, which makes the scene at the end of Daredevil Season 2, where he finds Micro's disc, confusing. Because... In Daredevil, Frank grabbed the disc almost like he had hidden it there himself and knew where to find it, while Micro says that he left it for Frank to find. Now, comic books are no stranger to retcons, so this simply could be one of those, but it does create a contrast between the two scenes where it doesn't seem to match. I mean, it wouldn't be the first retcon in the MCU. Even the films have done a couple. But, uh, yeah... But yeah, the plot lines all gradually converge. Madonna, Madani ends up in a relationship with uh, Billy, um, which highlights just how twisted and two-faced Billy can be. Like, there's one point where we see him kill her best friend after she stayed, you know, her partner, after she stages a raid on an area where his mercenaries are to try and catch him. And... It kills, he kills her partner, and then we see him in her apartment comforting her in the aftermath. It's it's quite dark, but it's very very well done. It's like he he's take he's completely taking advantage of her. Um, the plot thread with Lewis, he kind of gets um, he kind of gets disillusioned with one of the other um you know he gets disillusioned with civilian life he he like digs a foxhole in his garden in quite an interesting scene showing this like sort of mental breakdown that he's going through like he misses the army and you know it highlights this kind of abandoned generation of veterans which has constantly been a thing in america um, at least from their fiction, from like Vietnam right through to the modern day. You know, this is not a new thing. He's just struggling. And eventually he becomes sort of like a, you know, he kills someone he becomes disillusioned with because the, the person was lying about all of his war stories. And Lewis finds that a personal affront because of obviously what Lewis went through himself. And... Yeah, Lewis becomes a a bomber. Like, he sets bombs off around New York. He tries to take out a, uh, a senator who's dealing with... Um, he's dealing with gun control issues. There's a senator, senator dealing with gun control issues. And Lewis, like, sets a bomb off in the room um, while he's being interviewed by Karen... So we have like this really great episode where this bomb goes off in the hotel and we see the lead up to it from multiple different perspectives from like Madani, Billy, Frank, Karen, Lewis 
and then as it all comes together and um, it starts with us in the aftermath of it as everything's being explained to Brett um because yeah Brett comes back and it's it's good to see Brett back again because I yeah I like Brett as a character uh, he's now a detective sergeant at the NYPD you know and that's that episode is also when Madani learns the truth about Billy and you know, Rawlins and Billy learn that Frank's still alive. The public learn that Frank's still alive. You know, because everyone assumed the Punisher was dead. And it's it all leads up to this to this quite brutal fight towards the end of the season at the carousel where Frank's family were killed between Frank and Billy. And it is hard to watch. Like, Billy is brutally, like, brutally taken down by Frank. And Frank takes Billy's face and shreds it against shattered glass. And the level of gore is very impressive. Um, and I actually find that scene quite hard to watch. Um... You know, but that's Billy's transformation into the Jigsaw persona. Um, you know, Jigsaw in the comics has this quite mangled face. Um, and this is the sort of the build-up to that. But it's it's the punishment. Frank, by, by the end of the the season, um, the truth has been revealed, the... the the uh, the conspiracy has been kind of exposed by Homeland Security. Arrests have been made. Uh, Micro gets to go back home to his family. Frank confesses everything, gets a pardon for his previous crimes on behalf of Homeland due to exposing this. And, you know, with the exception of Billy, everyone else involved in the conspiracy ends up dead. Um, usually at Frank's hands. <laughs> the only problem with season one. Season one is quite solid for most of the way through. There's some some very good character stuff. Like there's a scene where uh Karen and Madani interview uh interview each other. Like the 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 kind of I think Karen's trying to get a statement from Madani, but Madani's also kind of interviewing Karen. And by this point Karen knows Frank is still alive and her excitement over that obviously is quite telling after Defenders. Like she kind of holds on to Frank because she's lost Matt. Um you know, wants to keep him safe and keep him alive. Um which echoes the bond that the two of them had in Daredevil anyway. Um and is the only real connection to Defenders, because for the most part this show ignores Defenders completely and doesn't tie itself to the crossover, which means it can tell its own story. Um which works quite well for it. Um, but yeah, uh, Karen and Madani are interviewing each other and they both kind of know that the other is hiding something, but they're also both trying not to give away what they know. And it's a brilliant bit of like verbal sparring between the two of them. Um, there's also some great moments between um, Frank and Micro who initially cannot stand each other, but there's a scene where they bond and discuss their wives and their marriages and 
Yeah, and or or even scenes with um with Curtis and Frank where they're talking about like the bonds of the military and brotherhood and things like that. It's there's some really good character stuff in this. The only problem is perhaps for the first few episodes before you really get attached to some of the other characters, with the exception of maybe Frank with the exception of maybe Karen and Micro when the focus gets removed from Frank, you're not as interested. At least at, at first. It does get better. Um, because, like I said, the characters start to come into their own more as more interesting people. Um, you know, Lewis starts to evolve into an antagonist, which becomes very interesting. Um, you know, we start to get interested more in the plot with Madani when she links with Billy and we see how two-faced Billy is. So it does start to get more interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, for those first couple of episodes where Frank isn't technically the Punisher anymore, you know, except for, you know, some of his kills where he's taking down people linked to the conspiracy uh like there's one quite early on where he makes out that like he's like the other person uh has the upper hand on him and then it turns out frank's been in control the entire time and kills the guy and it's like that's well done and it becomes like one of the best scenes in the whole episode <sighs> But yeah, when, when the focus isn't on Frank, and at least until you start to really appreciate the characters, the show can feel a bit slow. And I think part of that is because we're just so invested in Frank, and Frank's story is so good, um, and the characters just aren't as immediately as engaging as they are in, say, Luke Cage. You know, in Luke Cage, we're instantly intrigued by characters like Mariah and um, Cornell so that even though we've the only character we know going in is Luke Cage we quickly become interested in these other characters with Punisher we don't necessarily become interested as quickly but we do get interested the show also has quite an interesting uh, musical choice which I haven't mentioned as well I don't I can't think of where else to mention it so I'll put it here just before I talk about season two um the they've given a lot of the music a kind of a blues rock vibe like sort of the the country and western rock like southern rock and it works really well for Frank's character um you know we have scenes of Frank playing the guitar and teaching his daughter to play the guitar when she was alive but it also to me felt like a little bit of a reference to one of the more notable scenes in the Thomas Jane Punisher film, in that one of the um, assassins, like Howard Saint, sends a whole load of assassins after Frank in different points in the film. And one of them he sends after Frank is um, a, a country and western singer. And he sings a song in the middle of the um, the cafe while Frank's there, like directly to Frank. Before then, obviously, Frank chases him down and kills him later on. And it's... Uh, 
yeah, it's a bizarre part of the film. It feels a bit... It takes you aback a bit at first when you watch it. But it's it's one of the more memorable parts of that film. And I wonder if maybe making uh, the rock references, the, the sort of the bluesy country rock references in the music for this show is like a reference to that. I don't know. Now, season two follows the trend that was obviously established by Luke Cage and Iron Fist of the second season, learning from the mistakes of the first season and creating a stronger product. Not that season one was bad by any means, but it was, like I said, a bit slow to start, and while characters all became more interesting as it went on, for a large part of the first half of the season, the show just wasn't that interesting when Frank wasn't on screen. This season doesn't have that problem. We're invested, obviously, in all of the returning characters, which is uh, Frank, uh, Billy Russo, Madani, uh, Curtis. But the new characters that we do get are very interesting from the start. Uh, we get given a brand new villain named John Pilgrim, um, who comes across with this really calm exterior, but is very immediately shown as being ruthless and very efficient as a killer. Um, we get a psychotherapist for military vets in um, Christi uh, Krista, uh, played by Floriana Lima. She does a really good job. She works with uh, Billy, who's struggling due to the the trauma that he's received from Frank. He said he can't remember Frank doing it to him. Um, and while he's not as horrifically scarred as Jigsaw is in the comics, it's clear it's had more of a mental impact on Billy, who was obviously very physically attractive, having this enormous scar now on his face. Um, you know, while he's not as disfigured as he is in the comics, it's it's clear it's it's broken him psychologically. And then the final character we get introduced to as a a main character is um, Amy Bendix, although she uses several other names. Um, and she's played by Georgia Wiggum um, from 13 Reasons Why. You know, she's on the run. She's being chased by uh, Pilgrim. And that leads her to Frank. And Frank ends up helping her as a result. Um, Russo has been healing um, since his battle with Frank. He's haunt he gets this skull that keeps appearing in his nightmares, which is obviously Frank. Um, but he's lost all memory of his history with Madani and Frank. Madani doesn't believe him, so she's been watching him like a hawk. Um... And obviously, like I said, he works with Krista, who clearly has some issues of her own, despite being a psychotherapist. It's a really good season. Um, the character work is very, very good. The scripting is brilliant. And there's so many little touches by the actors and the props that show just how affected our characters were by last season. Like, you know... Uh, Madani and Curtis and Billy especially all seem quite traumatised by the things they've gone through like Frank is 
you know, Curtis is more nervous after getting attacked by Lewis and uh, Billy. Um, you know, Billy started wearing uh, masks to kind of retreat within the mask and use the mask as a persona. <sighs> yeah. It's good. Amy takes a bit of a while to make a positive impression. We kind of get annoyed by her at first, but she's very clearly in distress and needs help, which makes her intriguing. Um, and, you know, Frank kind of stumbles into her while she's in distress and have that lead him onto an adventure. It reminded me of the, um, the Slaver's arc from the Max comics, which was one of my favourite arcs from the comics, where... Um, you know, Punisher in helping a villain, in helping a, a victim, learns about these um, slavers, these, this family of human traffickers. And as she tells him the story, he resolves to track them all down and kill them all. Um, and yeah, it's good. I really like it. It turns out that um, Pilgrim has this sort of Christian fundamentalist who has been hired by um, by this family who are trying to protect the secret, like this, this upper-class American family, Christian family, that are trying to protect the secret that their son is gay. And Amy has evidence of that. And they've hired Pilgrim to... You know, Pilgrim, who used to be um, an assassin, used to be a, a more evil character. And they've hired him to, to basically kill anyone who knows, which includes Amy. And it's that sort of personal stake, which is kind of ridiculous, but reduced so much from the the big stakes of the first season. Like, the first season... While it was good and there was a lot of political intrigue, it felt more... It didn't feel like a story with the Punisher. This one does. This feels like the sort of shady thing that the Punisher would stumble his way into and have to kill a whole load of people before, you know, making things right. You know, the Punisher shouldn't be dealing with the CIA... You know, that's that's something the S.H.I.E.L.D. would do, or a spy like Black Widow would do. Punishers should be dealing with criminals. You know, there is some great character stuff as well. We see, like, um, you know, Curtis having an interaction with Russo and being terrified. We see uh, Madani speak at one of Curtis's support meetings. Um, you know, Krista and... Um, Billy sort of, you know, Billy sort of forms a little private army in a of like fight club style. Um, whether it was intentional or not, it did remind me of fight club, like this little underground group. And he ends up um, in a romance with Krista, which is very unprofessional. But as you sort of explore her own issues and her own dysfunction and her own trauma as the result of her family that does start to make sense. You know, the reason the, the family, the Schultzes, have hired Pilgrim to go after her, though, you know, it, it it's criminal, but it's also, like, petty. 
like ridiculously petty, but it's all born out of that sort of shame about and homophobia that religious conservatives have. So it feels like, you know, especially pertinent in the the modern day with um, how, well, in recent days, how Andrew Windsor has gotten out of um, his trial with Virginia Guffrey by, like, throwing money at her. You know, rich people throw money at things to cover up their crimes. You know, there's there's innocent, guilty, and guilty but rich. Um, and that's what the Schultzes are. So, yeah, this is the sort of thing that Frank should be dealing with. You know, the bond between Frank and Amy is quite good. Um, you know, he he starts to gradually get concerned for her, even though she's clearly very independent and very capable. You know, he takes almost kind of a paternal role with her. But as the season goes on, while obviously they're exploring this plot with Pilgrim and the Schultzes, and they're still obviously having to deal with him, it becomes clear that Billy is becoming the main villain again. But it never feels like the tone is being divided, or like the screen time is being divided between these two villains, as it can often do when there's too many villains. Um, you know, that seem opposed. It's like them solving the plot of the Schultzes and Pilgrim and finding out why he's after them leads them towards, you know, going back to New York, which is obviously where Billy is. And so them coming back to New York means that Billy is going to confront them. You know, Frank does interact with Russo before they end up opposing. And, you know, he he says he can't kill... You know, he makes the decision not to kill a Billy Russo who doesn't remember what he did. You know, because that's not honourable. <laughs> that's not right. He can't kill Billy for something Billy can't remember doing. Pilgrim gets some great moments that sort of explore who he is um, without, like, a full flashback. Like, we see him talking to himself, or, like, putting himself back together um, and, like, sees visions of his wife, um, like, egging him on. Um, you know, he's he's doubting himself, and then she kind of pulls him out of it. Brett takes a bigger role this season, trying to sort of bring Punisher to justice. Um, for more people that obviously Frank's end up killing throughout the season, um, which then become extra to his, his previous crimes that he was pardoned for. Um, but the two of them kind of find a little peace when... Not like a peace, like a detente of sorts, um, because obviously he has bigger issues with, like, Pilgrim and the... Um, and Billy. Uh, Curtis gets brought in to sort of help Frank and help him deal with Amy. And that means that Curtis has to fight Pilgrim as well. And yeah, it's 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 good. The series builds really well. I, I don't think I'm doing it justice. You know, um, you get the you get the the resolution to the Schultz plot that sees them. 
sees them killed um and sees the end of sort of pilgrim's role in everything um you know krista ends up killed by madani after using some information that she got from madani to um to sort of help billy in his crusade you know <sighs> It, it we get a lot of nice stuff towards the conclusion of this like Frank and Amy deal with the Schultzes and then they have their final scenes together which sort of honour their time together and the effect that they've had on each other similar to his final scenes with Micro in season 1 and it's good it's good stuff but then he lets Amy go he doesn't join her because he doesn't want her to become like him but you know by the end of it um pilgrim gets dealt with billy gets killed and then we flash forward in time and now madani's working for uh i think she's now working for the cia and she contacts frank and it's kind of like you know are you interested in helping he's like no i've got my own mission and it turns out he's organized some um two different gangs to a meeting and they're they're about to blame each other like why have you why have you called us now i know you didn't call you did uh and then he bursts in with two assault rifles and shoots them all with uh you know with the the skull emblazoned on his chest and just roaring defiance and it's just yeah the punisher is reborn he has his crusade and it's a good season and it gets where it's going far quicker than season one with all of the characters being more more immediately engaging it does suffer sometimes from um the characters not being able to swear like it feels um like amy especially has some very bizarre workarounds for not being able to use the f word um and again it just becomes weird to me because i've seen that in other Netflix properties so I, I'm not sure why the Netflix Marvel stuff maybe Marvel just didn't want them to use the word maybe Disney didn't I don't know um but at least Amy's odd word choices are a bit more creative than the uh the goddams that we got in Jessica Jones um as to how well it works as a conclusion to the Punisher series you know it's probably actually better than you think the Two seasons show that stories happen to Frank. Like, rather than it, it being a continuing story. Because, like, Frank is in literally a different place when we meet him in each of these seasons. You know, he's... After the prologue in season one, he puts his crusade behind him because he's, he's dealt with the people that he needed vengeance on and he's retired and then he gets brought back into being the Punisher then after season one where he's been pardoned he's travelling different areas of America and then he gets brought back into it so you know things happen to Frank rather than Frank you know rather than say for example with Luke Cage where Luke Cage is in Harlem or Daredevil is in Hell's Kitchen you know, it's it's closer to Jessica Jones where, you know, things happen to him because he ends up getting involved in the same way that she gets involved with her cases. 
you know, most of the returning characters from season one are only involved because of Russo. Like, Madani is the, the only character, even ends her story in a place that separates her from Frank, to the point that if they were to do a third season, if they had done a third season of this, the only characters I could see returning from before possibly Curtis and Brett. Like, everyone else has separated from Frank. You know, but Punisher being reborn at the end kind of brings Frank full circle back to where he was after the prologue in the first episode. Like, he's realised the role he needs to play in the world, even though his own scores are settled, and even though it's not necessarily a good thing for him to do, that's the role he's there to play, and he's going to do it. So it's a very satisfying conclusion, because it doesn't just feel like a conclusion, it also feels like a beginning. And, yeah, I think it worked quite well. Thank you very much for listening to Gardo Goes Geek. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to recommend it to your friends. If you would like to get in touch with me to discuss a topic or an idea for a future episode, or to give feedback on the episode you just listened to or any of our others, then you can reach me at any of my social medias. I am at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. All of my social media links, as well as links for everywhere this podcast can be found, are contained on Linktree slash Gardo. Thank you for listening, and until next time.